This week on Heads and Tails, I traveled to Hoboken, New Jersey to interview one of the toughest people I've ever met, Rihanna Gutkowski. This is Kevin Som, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. We share stories of perseverance and inspiration in sports and in life. This week on the Heads and Tails podcast, we're interviewing Rayanna Gutkowski, and she's a survivor of osteosarcoma. She's a former college volleyball player, um, and she's been an athlete her whole life. And we're going to kind of go through her trials and tribulations that she went through during her um, treatment and diagnosis. We're going to talk about what she's doing now and her life after sports, uh, which is a part, of, a big part of the reason why I started this podcast because it's something that I really struggle with, and I know a lot of athletes struggle with that. So, Rihanna, um, you want to start off by talking about what your or what sports you played growing up? Um, so, I came from a big sports family. My dad has always played sports growing up. Um, so, I did everything when I was young. I did gymnastics, dance, softball, soccer. It's funny though. When I was younger, I was uh, let's say above average child. I was always above the charts, 99 percentile height and weight. Okay. So I, even when I was little, some of, um, I was at a wedding last year and a girl I went to high school with, I played kindergarten soccer with, and her mother was telling one of my friends when we played kindergarten soccer, the other parents used to be like, that girl's not in kindergarten. Right. And the parents used to be like, no, she is. Cause I was two or three heads taller than everyone. Right. So from a very young age, like I was bigger and I was stronger so I did excel at sports but it was almost like a double-edged sword because I can remember I did gymnastics I did dance but I think they one time in gymnastics they told my parents like listen like her head hits the uneven <laughs> bars like I don't think this is going to be for her <laughs> like you know you play with you're, you're doing gymnastics with these really teeny you should play basketball <laughs> or something yeah like these really teeny like um almost like agile like girls are doing back bends and right. flips, and I'm like, yeah, all gymnasts are yeah, like five foot nothing, yeah. yeah. And in like in sixth grade or in fifth grade, I already weighed, you know, over a hundred pounds. My mom likes to also tell people that I never would have been able to play pee wee football. You never would have been able no, to. No, I was above the weight limit. Like she likes to joke about that, right, but right, she right. like. So real funny, mom. Uh, yeah, I'm like, thanks a lot, mom. <laughs> you created me, and she goes, I know, I don't know how I did that. Well, Rayanna and I are both from Long Valley, and I you're a year older than me. Yeah, well, but I remember I do remember you being taller. I would say there was only one person taller than me in my grade. Who was that? Laura Steck. Thank you, Laura Steck. She was my neighbor when I was. She was taller than me. From age two to seven, and then I moved. So she yeah, was my neighbor. Yeah, but anymore. she was. Thanks, thanks for Laura Steck because right. she really made me like not the tallest, <laughs> but I was pretty pretty close to her behind. But as I got. A little bit older, I kind of did the, the soccer, the traveling soccer, fall, spring. Um, in about fifth grade, I started to get really into basketball. Um, and that's when I kind of found um, my sport. I had f five or six teammates, like me, Lindsey Burton, Kate Wegger, Ashley Rhino. There was five or six of us that played on three teams at one point. We used to play something like 70 or 80 games a season. Oh, wow. We played you guys were good, though. We, were, we played CYO, we played school, we played AAU. Yeah. You know, we didn't even need to practice because every day was a game for us. Um, and it would almost, I remember there was a little bit of controversy when we were in seventh grade because all the other parents were like, why even have our kids try out? Like, these are the girls going to be on the yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we loved it. It was awesome. Like, that was, that was really my sport. And then I still played soccer. I loved soccer. Um, but some of the girls in my grade 
had started playing more competitively when I moved towards basketball. So coming up to high school, I was kind of like, eh, I'm gonna play, am I going to play soccer and basketball? And Dana Caruso at the time, her sisters had played volleyball in high school, and she in eighth grade was like, hey, just come to this camp with me. Just come with this camp. It's a volleyball camp? It was just a volleyball camp. Like the high school ran in the summer. It was kind of like a little clinic. You know, I had no idea about volleyball. And I went, and the coach, Beth Grosso, was, was like, oh, my God, yes. She's like, you got to play volleyball. And I was like, yeah, I play soccer, I play soccer. But then, like, the more I thought about it, the more I really played, I was like, I'm going to just do this. Like, I'm going to try. So that's where, when I started playing volleyball, I stopped playing soccer in school, but I actually still played in the spring. I played on, a, like, a traveling league oh, okay. with, like, all my friends when it was f- fun. And then um, I still played basketball. So in high school, for three years, I played... Multi-sport athlete to the multi- T, yeah. yeah. And I'm going to tell you, the, the reason why I picked up volleyball so quickly is because I was an athlete. Right. And that's what Coach Grasso saw in me, is that I was athletic, and I had kind of the athletic mindset and, like, spatial kind of recognition from the basketball and the soccer field. Right. And the volleyball field a lot... what's yeah, about to happen. Yeah, yeah you can kind of... And, and volleyballs, it's a smaller court, but just having that ability to understand sports and kind of having that competitiveness, I was able to really pick up on volleyball so much quicker. Right. Yeah. We talk about that a lot on the podcast about being a multi-sport athlete, and not only does it help in terms of, like, injury prevention, but also um, just being a better athlete in every single sport. You know, it's, it makes you more well-rounded. Absolutely. Before we get too far into the – um, the volleyball stuff. Did you have any injuries growing up or like during you your know, athletic uh, career? Playing soccer, especially like the fields you're playing in Long Valley and everything. I always had a few sprained ankles here and there. Nothing bad. Um, broke my finger in basketball once. Um, Miss Barba had to tape me up for that. Um, tapes fingers, yeah, saves lives. She, she does it all. I yep. used to tape my ankles. Um, but no, other than that, and then, you know, I was in eighth grade, I was in a car accident, and I broke my nose and had a very bad concussion. Okay. Um, but other than that, that wasn't sports-related. What was your, like, what was some of your symptoms from the concussion? Well, um, it was unfortunate. I was actually, we were coming home from a basketball game, um, and I was in one of the my t- teammates' father's car, and we hit black ice, and we, like, T-boned a tree. You were in, I was in eighth grade, so you were younger than me. You were in seventh, seventh grade. grade. Yep. Um, I was... I was unconscious for hours. What? I don't remember anything. I wait. I re- we we were right by um, the A and P in Flanders where Gold's Gym is. Yeah. It was okay. right on. Is that Bartley? Bartley. Yeah, Bartley Flanders Road. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. And uh, I don't remember anything until getting to Morristown Memorial. They sent ambulances from Hackensack or Hack. Excuse me, Hackettstown, and they sent us to to Morristown. And I wasn't. I don't even remember waking up till then. Wow. It was bad. Um, my teammate broke her leg. She's had a really bad accident. Yeah, yeah, it was bad. It was definitely very bad. I broke my nose, so I had a nose cast, um, which... Were you at a school for a while or and out of sports? You know, I, I was at a school for about two weeks, and then I pulled that nose cast off real quick, which I, looking back, like, I really shouldn't have done. But at that <laughs> time, like, in eighth grade, I'm like, I'm not going to school oh, with like this thing. Yeah, yeah. So, like, when my parents wouldn't look, I'd be, like, wiggling it to see if, like, it would come loose. Right. And then my f- my first day back at basketball, love you, Kim Williams, but you totally elbowed me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't tell my parents. I was afraid. Right. But my mom to this day is like, I wish you would have told us because we would have had your nose fixed. 
Well, <laughs> like, thanks, mom. So yeah. other than that, no, like I never had any kind of severe, severe injuries. All right. Lucky. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, mine kind of like progressively got worse as I got into more competitive athletics. Yeah. But people generally know my story. And if you don't, go back to episode one. You'll you'll learn it all. Um, so let's talk about your accolades uh, in volleyball. Or did you? What other sports did you play? Did you play uh, basketball all through uh, high school too? I stopped playing my senior year. Okay. Which looking back was like these these were like my girls. Like we were had always thought about when we were like in seventh ninth grade when we got to senior year like right. us playing basketball but you know that was their sport and I've heard some other athletes that you've interviewed talk about that and volleyball became my nice, sport yeah. and I, the second basketball season was over I didn't touch a basketball until Thanksgiving right where they were playing all year, all round, year round and yeah. it was like I was playing volleyball all year, all year round and you know I actually um forego playing on a national volleyball like AAU team um, sophomore year of high school because you were not allowed to play any other sports. You had to kind of specialize because you had tournaments all year. Yeah. And it was very difficult for me playing volleyball and basketball in the winter. I would go from basketball practice at high school right to Denville for volleyball practice, and I'd get home like 11 o'clock at night. So it was difficult to juggle, but I was willing to do it at that point because volleyball was such a passion of mine. Okay. But um, I think around my junior year is when I was like, you know, I really think I want to pursue this volleyball thing. I have to put it in full time. I really got to make a commitment my senior year. Right. And again, it was the vo the basketball girls. They were so into basketball, and it I almost was like, if my heart's not 100% in it, and I'm not going to be able to practice, it's not even fair to them. Right. Um, so that's when I, I switched to to full time volleyball. But Westmore Central had a really special volleyball program. Yeah, you guys were legit. It was, and I believe it, 100% all credited to the coach. Beth Grasso, unbelievable woman, like biggest role model in my life. She created such an awesome program from the time you were a freshman to a senior. It was, it was like a f tradition that she created. Okay. Yeah. Can you talk about the specifics of what made the program so great? So she, regardless if you were a freshman that never saw court time or you were a senior captain, played every second, you had the same importance in her eyes. And even from, you know, what we used to call Hell Week or, you know, preseason camp, everyone was always involved. Um, it wasn't like the freshmen would, you know, have to do their own things and the JV. You know, we would practice separately, but she would always bring us all together for team bonding. She was very big on um, kind of like the, the psycho-mental part of sports. She did, we, we would do like visual, visualization, um, you know, we used to talk about um, building confidence in our teammates, and we used to do all these really great activities. Right. She was a guidance counselor, so she had like a lot of good ideas of of how to bring you together closer as a team. And you know, looking back, coaching fifteen to seventeen year old girls, it's hard. Yeah, I, I would think that would be an easy thing. It's it's a difficult time, and a lot of times girls can you know you they're girls drama, like yeah. they're a little drama. I'm telling you, our volleyball program, you know, maybe we weren't all the best friends outside of volleyball, but the second you stepped into practice or stepped on that court, right. everyone gave everyone the utmost expect. And it was kind of coming in freshman year, the seniors and, and the, the juniors, it was almost like this tradition and everyone took it so seriously and really had a passion for Westmore Central Volleyball that the second you, you kind of were exposed to that freshman year, you it was hoped, like, that yeah. was it. Like, it was just such an awesome experience you know my senior year was the seventh year in a row that we won the morris county 
tournament they, they only had it for seven years. No one else had ever won. Oh, wow. So, you know, all, all the teams before me had been super successful. And, yeah, the second I started applying, I was like, this is where I want to be. Right. And, and Beth Grasso really developed me into such a confident athlete. Like, I had always been a good athlete growing up. But actually, as I said, I was, when I was younger, I was big. I can remember, like, in soccer, I would kick the ball and it hit someone and they would be sobbing. And then I would be sobbing. Because you felt and, bad. Because <laughs> I felt bad, you know? And it was, like, it was kind of hard. They girls <laughs> in the face. Yeah. yeah, like, it was kind of hard growing <laughs> up. Like, gosh, like, no one even wanted to, like, you know, sometimes my dad would laugh. He's like, when you were younger and you would get the ball, um, you know, people would like, it would be like parting of the sea because no one wanted get to like, I know. Yeah. And, but uh, as a girl, I think that that like sometimes affected me negatively. But once I got into volleyball, like Grosso just really kind of instilled this self-confidence in me. And it, it was, it was unbelievable. I, I loved high school volleyball. Awesome. What's your favorite high school volleyball memory? I'm going to say just, oh gosh, my senior year, being that captain, being that leader of the team, I loved that pressure. I love that everyone needed me to practice 110%, have the right attitude, lift everyone up, and kind of be that leader. Like, you couldn't take a day off. And right. like looking back, it was it's crazy. On and off the court. Yeah, too, on yeah. and off the court, and everything. And I can I could still remember on our way to the state finals. We made it to the state finals my senior year. We unfortunately lost, but the team was we lost to a really good team. You know, I think I wrote like a letter to everyone on my team, and it was like something super inspiring. And I was like, "This is it! Like we're going to put 110 percent. We've come so far. You know, no matter what, we're going to be so proud of ourselves." But I think we were the first team to ever to make it to the state finals for West Morris. We had won the county championships, and I was like, "This is it! This is our time to shine!" And I just loved that. Um, you know, it's it's fun winning. But it's fun winning with people who you really care about. Right. And you've been, you know, practicing for four years with. And In that environment that was created yeah, by your coach. And, yeah. And my coach, it was just everyone was so happy to be part of what we had. Right. And, you know, when you're in high school, like, that's your life. You know, you don't have, you're not paying a mortgage. You're not trying to go to work. So that's something that you're able to really feed off of and concentrate. So I would say, yeah, definitely my, like, my senior year right the, towards the, the end. The road to the finals, yeah. Towards the road to the finals, yeah. Cool. Um what were your personal accolades? Like, were you all state or uh, all this, yeah. all so that? So my senior year, I was um, Morris County Player of the Year. No big deal. Uh, no big deal. Um, ironically, the soccer Morris County Player of the Year for soccer, where we were on the inside pages of the paper together, yeah. was my college roommate. Oh, no way. Isn't that so weird? I was at her house one day, like, when we were in college, and she had the thing. I was like, no way. And her dad wrote out the paper, and our faces were touching. That's so funny. Um, and then I also was first team all state. Awesome. So... Yeah, I had a great senior season. I think I had like over 300 kills. Um, yeah, so what position did you play? So um, I started out playing middle blocker, which is the player right in the middle. Okay. Um, but kind of in New Jersey volleyball, your strongest players are going to play outside hitters or left side. So when you're looking at the net, it's the players on the left side. Um, just because usually they get the most sets. So it's your basically your strongest offensive okay. player. But, you know, left sides, we play all around. So you play defense as well. So... You're, right. you're playing. You're playing both, but that's that was my um, that was senior year. You awesome. know, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, 
definitely it was it was what I envisioned my senior year being like, but didn't quite work <laughs> out that way. Not even, not even close. But anyway, uh, were there any athletes that you looked up to growing up that you try to like emulate yourself out after? Um, you know, being exposed to volleyball in my freshman year, the two seniors my freshman year were awesome. Um, Devin Brothers and Kylie Theringer, like they were just like what I wanted. Okay. My senior year. So just, it was like people on your team, not like profe- professional not really. athletes or anything. No, no. I. Not. No, it's funny that you say that because I mean, when I think back to when I was, you know, in high school and who I looked up to, yeah, I had like. Like, I love Tim Tebow. Everyone knows that who knows me. But it was, like, Nate Anderson. Like, I wanted to be, like, Nate Anderson. He was the fullback who was ahead of me. And, like, he was my position. He was, a, you know, a great athlete. You know, it's those kind of people that yeah, yeah. It, you look it, up to. Maybe it was more tangible. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. And then now let's talk about the transition to Marist. So can you talk about what the recruiting process was like, why you chose Marist? So, um I was struggling senior, junior and senior year if I really wanted to go play at school. So I, I knew that continuing to play basketball as long as I did kind of ended up hurting me in the recruiting process. Because you couldn't go to those AAU I, I wasn't things. playing like on more – they call them like more national teams. So they do a lot more traveling. They get a lot more exposure. Um, and in, in volleyball, you pretty much just play tournaments. That's where you go and there's recruiters at these big tournaments. But to be able to qualify for these tournaments, you got to play on more elite teams. And, you know, they're practicing more. Their schedule's crazy. Um, the elite team I would have played out of is out of Union. And, like, right, that's... my parents are like, well, can I drive you to Union yeah. like four times a week? Like, no We're thanks. Long Valley, no yeah. thanks. Like, play, you, you go play basketball, which I'm glad that I, that we did. Um, believe me, going to Maris was, was the best thing. But I was kind of like, all right, I'm good, but am I – Am I going to go D2 and, and play all the time, or am I going to go D1? It was kind of difficult. Um, I had to do a lot of my own – sending out my own video because I wasn't on, okay. like, those teams that had a lot of exposure. All right, so that's a good thing for kids who might be listening to this who, you know, don't have the option of playing on an AU team that yeah. travels all over. They don't have the money to travel over the world, you know, to – get yeah. exposure to these coaches that you can especially now like with with you know we didn't even have phone or cameras on our or video on our phone you know my dad had like a we actually like my dad would tape some film we actually used a lot of recruiting film from from coaches would go and recruit and we would we got some film from them and and sent to some coaches um you know we would send some stats to coaches and invite them to some of my practices they did that as well that's always a great option um, but yeah, it wasn't, it was more on my, my effort and my dad. We, we did a lot of emailing, um, to some coaches, sending videos. So I ended up going on, um, let's see, I think I went on three trips that I was serious that I wanted. So I went to Gettysburg first, which, um, so my girlfriend went D3. That was like a come here and you'll, you'll play, play. Yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. time. But it's so my first recruiting trip and woo, those freshmen's. Partied. Oh, yeah. Like, I can remember we went out, and the girl I was staying with couldn't remember which dorm she lived in at the end of the night. And I'm like, oh, oh God, screw yeah. this. Like, I'm not coming here. Because it was kind of, you know, it was definitely more of a, <laughs> it wasn't like volleyball was like the top priority okay, there. Yeah. Um, but at the school was beautiful. Um, and then my absolutely fell in love with Bucknell. That was my first choice. I love the team. The facilities there are unbelievable. The school's great. Unfortunately, my SAT scores weren't good enough. My grades were great, 
but they sat down and they said, if you're, these are your grades, this right. should be your SAT scores. And I didn't take any SAT prep. I didn't really study. I was playing sports every day. I didn't have time. Right. And I was a great student. Like I'm a great classroom learner, but I'm just not, you know, a super great test taker. So I didn't get in. Um, and I got into Marist and when I went on my recruiting trip, it was in January, it was snowing, it was two degrees and it was a blizzard. And I'm like hiking across campus to right. go to like 8 a.m. Calc with a freshman volleyball mm-hmm. girl. I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. Marist but, is a beautiful campus though when it's nice out, I guess. So yeah. I called the coach when it got nicer and I said, listen, can I come back? Can I come watch your practice? And I went back and it was like a day like today, like spring, beautiful I'm like, this is where I want to be. Right. So. Was it, did you notice anything about the program that reminded you of what you liked about the West Morris program or? No. One thing you got to realize is it's getting better now. New Jersey volleyball was very, very, very far behind. Oh, really? Um, most of the country. Um, it's almost like, you know how lacrosse is, is really great where we are here in New Jersey. Kids start playing lacrosse very young, but in other parts of the country, yeah, like they no one plays n- at all. Yeah. No one really plays. So it's, it's kind of reverse. Um, so on my team at Marist, there was only two other girls who could, were in driving distance. The majority of my teammates were from Texas, the Midwest, California, and Florida. They had been playing volleyball when we started playing soccer. Like, right. if you start in kindergarten. So um, wow. it was a completely different atmosphere. And I learned pretty quickly that it was different. <laughs> what do you mean by that? It, it was just, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, I was in high school. I was like this big shot. You know, I played every game. Right. Even in AAU and, like, our traveling team, I played every game. Yeah, big fish in a small yeah, pond. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the second I get to Marist, like, I, I was by far the best athlete at Marist. Because I had played multiple sports. Most of my teammates, they've been playing volleyball and only and, volleyball. And only volleyball, wow. All through, they have middle school teams all through middle school, high school. It's straight volleyball. I had the athleticism. They had the skills. Okay. You know, when I started, when I played at Westmore Central, I'm, I was actually, I think, till this day, still one of, the only freshman that was, have ever played all four years on varsity. But because of that, I kind of got a, like a really quick learning, like, all right, this is what you got to do. Now right, you can right, play. Right. Yeah. So I missed a lot of those basic skill sets okay. of like really slowing down form and everything. Believe me, I made I made by fine, but I, it, it started to be a little bit more evident when I got to the college level. You showed yeah, your weaknesses were. Yeah, yeah. And especially when you get to college, the pace of the game is so much quicker. Um, I don't know if anyone's listening or you do ever watches any kind of like college volleyball or, or – I was watching men's volleyball on TV last night. It's like ridiculous, yeah. Yeah. So uh, high school volleyball in New Jersey, it's a lot slower. The sets are a lot higher. Once you get to college, you start running plays. There's really quick sets. People are running this way and that way, crisscrossing. So it's a lot faster-paced game, which usually happens with any sport going to a college level. Right. So it was definitely – my freshman year was a huge, huge learning curve for me. I felt like I was way over my head – so talk about those feelings. Like I'm sure you're oh. not the only, you know, it, it person was, who walks onto a college first, campus. Oh my gosh, my freshman year, it was difficult, especially playing a fall sport. Um, the one benefit was though, I, I went to school about a month early, so I was on campus and I I felt comfortable by the time all the other freshmen got there. Right. Um, and I had my automatic, um, you know, team. 
you have friends no matter what. It's like uh, if my freshman year, there was six freshmen. Oh, wow. There were six freshmen and six upperclassmen. We were half the team. Yeah. And I, I still will never forget, um, we had like a, you know, all the freshmen came and they did like a freshman reception. And, you know, my roommate, we did not room with volleyball players. You had to room with non-athletes, which I'm glad that they did. Um, because it kind of exposed us to other people other than volleyball. Right. But I can remember my, my roommate was like, wow, like the volleyball circle's really tall because I was actually small on my team. Um, I'm 5'10". Nine out of 13 players on my team are over six foot. Wow. Yeah, I'm friends with one uh, volleyball player who she's like 6'2". She played at Manhattan College. And when I was at Georgetown – I had some mutual friends, you know, Anthony Germanario. So Anthony was my roommate at, at at Georgetown and he was friends with a lot of volleyball players. And there was some, yeah, six really, plus, really yeah, girls. I think freshman year volleyball going to Marist, I learned probably my biggest life lesson, which is you're not always going to win. You're not always going to be the MVP, but that doesn't mean that you're not an important part of the team. Right. And I think it made me, um, gained so much respect from some of my best friends from high school volleyball, like my really good friends, Megan Simpson, Marianne Cannon. They worked their butt off all four years. They were there every day at practice, you know, doing everything I did. They didn't get a lot of playing time, but you know what? Like they were still in it 120%. Right. Um, And when I got to Marist, like that was my new role. Like I was going to you know, practice as hard as I could, try to catch up. I would do one-on-ones with the assistant coach to, like, learn some, like, more skills just right. so I could kind of elevate my level. Um, and that was me. I was, the, I was the, you know, a freshman who maybe got in the game, maybe didn't. But that's, you know, that's a big thing when you get to, to college sports is, you know, there's usually some really great players ahead of you, and you just learn from it. But I loved that. Like, they I learned a lot and I definitely elevated my level, but you learn to really respect everyone on the team. Right. You know what I mean? Like someone who's on, someone who's cheering on the side has just as important role as someone who's getting 15 kills a game. Exactly. Just like uh, episode 27, Dallas uh, Owano on with Villanova basketball. He, he may, he always said what I got out of that episode was, you know, how he made practice his game. And he knew his role on the team and stuff like that. So that's and, exactly and what you're saying, too. And I think too. that, that is, his, if you guys haven't listened to this episode, listen to it. Because that's, that's my favorite episode of everything you've done. I just – he has such an unbelievable but realistic understanding of sports. Right. Because guess what? Not everyone is the best player on the team. And I think the thing is it's hard is when at one point you are and then you're, you're not. not. Yeah. But you know what? Like, again, life – you know, we So you how get did out, you deal with that? Like, it was just – honestly leaning on my friends and I I will never calling and being like oh my gosh like how did you guys do this and they're like we just enjoyed being with you we enjoyed when we won right you enjoy the atmosphere and you know what I was such an athlete that I did love that like regardless if I, if I played or not it was being part of the team having that team camaraderie having the scheduled yeah, regimen, every, yeah. regimen every day that's how I excel in life and I can I still have a schedule regimen now in my life. So, Do you have you know, a, a written out itinerary? I don't have a written itinerary. Maybe in my brain. I okay. don't write it down. But, um, you know, it's just, it's how I am. And it was, a, it was hard. And, you know, I had a, some conflicts with my coach. Um, definitely was not Beth Grosso. But at the same time, like, 
guess what? Like in life, like you might have a boss who is not your best friend. Right. But guess what? Like too bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just have to deal with it. And it was also a big thing was my teammates. We were from all over the country. You know, you grew up in, in, in Long Valley. Like, you know, everyone's different, it, but you it, all come from the same area with a, a lot bubble. of values. Yeah. Everyone's white. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Middle pretty. Middle to upper class. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, it's different. Now all of a sudden I'm coming from all different. My teammates are from all over the country, all different upbringings. And it was, it was a big cultural shock, but it was a great learning environment. Awesome. What was the biggest difference between like, what did you learn from that difference between your teammates? Like I, for me, I use the example of when I went to Rutgers because I went from this bubble in Long Valley with all the same people. And like, you don't even have to think about the different issues that go on in the world. Cause you're in your little mm -hmm. Long Valley bubble. Mm -hmm. But when I got to Rutgers, I took this class called race, class, gender, and schooling. And I was one of like three white kids in the whole class. But some of the stories that my classmates said, I'm like, holy crap, like this actually happens. Like they said, like when they're walking across the street, people like lock their doors or, you know, stuff that's like very hurtful. Mm -hmm. But like when you grow up in Long Valley, you never have to like deal with it. You never know anyone who has to deal with that. Yeah. So like, you don't think about it. It's not that you don't care, but. I would just say, uh, I think you learn. And I think, you know what I think, regardless if you play a sport or not, the older you get and the more people you're exposed to in your life, um, you, you learn to, to accept people for who they are, regardless. You know, I had a, a teammate I absolutely loved, but you had to kind of like understand who she was, take her for her flaws and just accept them and love her anyway. Yeah. Um, I think you just learn to deal with different types of people. Like I, I'll never forget, um, my freshman year, one of the juniors on the team, she was from a really small, very, very rural part of Ohio. Um, she graduated high school with uh, 50 kids. They all had horses. Everyone in the town was some kind of farmer right, or involved right, in the farm. Right. I, I, I ruined with her when, when freshman, uh, we were at a tournament. She's on the phone with her, her mom, and her mom's really pissed because her dad went to the bar last night, brought the horse, and then left the horse at the bar. What? Like, left the horse outside, tied up at the bar, yeah. and, like, walked home. And, like, they do that in their town. They, they ride a horse to a bar. And they tie their horse up and they go to the bar. Oh, wow. And I'm sitting there like, wow, like I thought people used to like say Long Valley. Valley was I was like, just going to say, you know, like, wow. yeah. But you know Cat, what? Cow tippers, yeah. It, it's just, I think the biggest thing is when you f face any kind of adversity in sports or anything, it's, you can take so many life lessons out of it. And it's hard to see that in the moment. Right. But looking back, Especially what it we're is, getting yeah, to. Yeah. And, and being an athlete and, and facing sports and playing games, it gives you the tools and the practice to handle that stuff in life. Right. So I think it makes people who play sport more apt to, to handle challenges. Think about like all those times in practices or the games where you're down by X amount of points. Like sometimes in life when you're in a tricky <laughs> like when you're in a tricky position in life, like it could be, you know what? Look at it in a different way. You've done it hundreds and hundreds of times before. Right. You'll figure it out. Yeah, find a way. Yeah. Uh, so, this. So, when were you officially diagnosed with osteosarcoma? So it and was. What like symptoms uh, brought yeah, yeah. on the diagnosis? So, um, so my freshman year of volleyball, I actually played. Um, I got a lot of time playing libero. So libero's the the player with the other color color jersey. They can only pay, play back row. And they cannot jump over the plane of the net. So if you ever watch any kind of professional volleyball, and it's the per person that's a different color. Okay. So, but then my sophomore year, 
especially the spring season, some of the girls went abroad. So I think I was voted like spring captain and I was starting to get oh, wow. like Getting a lot it, more yeah. playing time. And, you know, we were lift after my spring or after sophomore year, I guess I, my first recognition of having something wrong was 2000, I guess, eight wrapping Christmas presents. I was sitting on my, my knee, like kneeling, sitting on my feet. And I remember getting up and I felt like my left knee was stuck. I was like, yeah, I just had a whole season of volleyball. Like, yeah. obviously, I'm not going to be feeling feel too great. great. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I went back to college. We were li- lifting and conditioning all through the winter because you can't get back on the court until like March something. The NCAA rules. But you're you're working. Yeah, yeah. Oh, believe me, we're still, and and lifting, running, everything. No Fine. problems. Wow. No problems. Didn't feel. Then we start to practice again and again. Like I have a little bit more of an integral role on the team in the spring. I'm starting to realize, like, you know, strategically, like if I do well this spring season, like, you're gonna you know, it, I'm yeah. gonna be, I'm gonna have some some more opportunity. Um, and for me, it was like coming in, kind of being that underdog. Um, you know, when my coach prepared me for that when he recruited me, and he's like, listen, like I usually don't recruit from Jersey because of X, Y, and Z, even though my coach was from Jersey. He loved Jersey, but right. he just said, listen, compared to, you know, your teammate from Austin, Texas, who's been playing since she was five years old, right? you know, you got a lot of catching up to do. Do I not, you know, I would never recruit you if I didn't think you had the attitude and the athleticism to do it, but you're going to have to work your, your work butt off, and I did. And I was like, finally, kind of, things were starting to, to, to fall into place for me. Okay. During a drill, we're like literally, coach has like a, it's called a bucket of, of volleyballs, and he just picks them up and he just pounds them at you, just hits them at you like 20 per minute, and you're diving all over the place. Like, it's really brutal. I don't really know why. <laughs> and when you're doing it, you think it's great. Um, and I can remember I was having a hard time diving to my left side. Because you're. Because when I had to pull my knee back all the way, like where where your heel would be touching your butt, right? I just had this pain, and then so finally I'm like, Shh, Coach, I think something's wrong with my knee, and it's the biggest theme in all of your podcasts. Being an athlete, when you're so focused on success and, and wanting to prove yourself or do great things, you will always quiet that voice in the back of your head yeah, that says, telling you that something might be I up. think yeah. something might be wrong. And I had that voice in the back of my head and I kind of let it go for a little bit and I finally said something. And my biggest fear was, great, the athletic trainers are going to take me out for two weeks. Right. Like, don't go to the trainer. They'll take you out. And it's so funny looking back. Like, that's such a terrible attitude to have. Yeah, they're only there to help you. And their job is to keep you on the field. You know? Exactly. It, but And I don't think that they I, – I, and I think even this podcast is a great testament to that. I really think that there needs to be in athletic departments, in high schools and in colleges, maybe some more talk about injury prevention and speaking up and – and I love all the stuff that you've been talking about, about some people with like the concussion sensors now where it's it's not on the athlete to say something. This right. is the data. Like it's not up to subjective opinion. The, yeah. yeah. So we finally went and, you know, they did the ACL, LCL test and, and they're like, yeah, we, we don't really feel anything wrong. But, you know, there, there might be some fluid in there. Let's just we'll just get an MRI. Maybe you tore your meniscus. No big deal. I'm like, all right, fine. So we do. Our, we did an X-ray and then we did an MRI. So I'll never forget, I had the doctor of Ameris would come about once a week. So all the athletes who needed to wait to get cleared would have to see this doctor. And there would usually be a long line. So 
I had practice and then right after practice, I was like, went right to the, the training room and I waited and I was studying. I had an accounting test that night. I was my only night class and I was sitting there studying and I was like, yes, I'm first in line. Like, yeah. Haha. <laughs> you know, like all the other players would come in. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm first, I'm first. So I remember the doctor comes in and all the athletic trainers go in a back room and it's like kind of weird and they're in there and we're like, yo, what's going on? Like, so then they come out. And they're like looking weird, and, and I'm like, okay, I'm first. And they're like, the doctor wants to see you last tonight. And I'm like, oh, damn it. Like, I totally tore my meniscus. So I'm sitting there studying for <laughs> oh accounting, and everyone else has to go. And then all of a sudden, like, my coach comes downstairs. He, like, is not really looking at me, and then goes in this back room, and all the trainers are in the back room again. And they're and like, no okay. No one says a word to you. I'm like, oh, this is so weird. So I go in there, and my coach is crying. A grown man. Crying. crying. He was a little emotional, but like not overly. Right. And I'm like, and they had my my film up, my MRI film, and they said, nothing's wrong with your knee, but you have a bone tumor. And I'm like, what? Okay. what? Like, right. I'm like, tumor. Like, what does that word mean? And I think in today's society, it's kind of a scary word. And they said to me, like, th this could be something you had your whole life. We've never done any kind of X-ray or MRI of your leg, um, but we need to to be pretty aggressive here and make sure it's not something wrong. So you're not playing. That's it. No more playing right now. We're going to do some tests. Um, and I decided with my coach that we weren't going to tell the team yet until we figured out what it was because, again, the word tumor, it's scary. Yeah, it's scary. Yep. It's scary. So for about three weeks, we were doing testing. Um, and then finally, I decided to tell my team before I got the biopsy. Um, because it was, <laughs> they'd be like, Ray, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Like, why are you practicing? And I'm like, yeah, we're doing some tests. And it was hard. Like, these are your, your best friends that you see every day and you want to share with them how you're feeling even emotionally. And you couldn't. And I couldn't. Damn, and, you know, that's got to be really and when, tough. If you, yeah. go, if you Google bone tumor, the first thing that comes up is osteosarcoma. Right. So it's like, you know, we didn't really know. And my parents were like, ah, you're fine. Like, don't worry about it. Because, you know, they want me to be positive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not be scared. So then we did the biopsy. Um, and even the doctor who did the biopsy said, he's like, listen, I, I don't think you have anything to worry about, but we'll get the results. So I was actually on spring break my sophomore year. I was visiting my dad in Florida. My dad lives in, outside of Jacksonville, um, beautiful beach. Comes down to the beach and goes, I got to talk to you. Will you take a walk with me? And I'm like, yeah, I'm all excited. I think he's going to tell me that he's going to ask his now wife, but back then girlfriend, to that he's going to propose. So right. I'm like all excited. So we're walking to the beach and he's like, they got the results. It's bone cancer. And I'm like, what? You sure? Like, we, I was f flabbergasted. And, of course, the first thing I was scared about was losing my hair. The that first was the first thing, thing you thought oh of? Oh, my gosh, of course. I used to have, like, this beautiful blonde hair. I loved my hair. And I was so afraid of losing my hair. And, you know, it, it was a complete whirlwind from there. By the time I got back from spring break, my mom already had an appointment at Sloan. Um, you know, there's great children's hospitals around here, but uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in the city has the premier, they call sarcoma team. So in pediatric cancers, they break, um, based on the kind of cancer you have, they have different teams or specialties. Right. And you were how old at this time? I was a sophomore in college, so I was uh, 19. No, uh, 20. 20. All right, so you were on the cusp of a pediatric, I guess. So osteosarcoma is a pediatric cancer. So if I got osteosarcoma at 45, I would have got treated in pediatrics. Oh, really? So that yes. happens. So that happens. So it's a pediatric cancer. So regardless of the age, you're treated by pediatricians or okay. pediatric on, on oncologists. So by the time I got back on Monday, I had an appointment at Sloan. Uh, they treat about, I think, 
upward of 30% of osteosarcomas worldwide now. Oh, wow. Um, and sarcomas is kind of lumped together. It's any kind of bone, um, soft tissue, or muscle cancer. So there's different kind of sarcomas. Um, there's like Ewing sarcoma. There was a football player at Boston College that had Ewing sarcoma. Okay. And then I think he played on the Giants. I think he was from Boston College. And, you know, there's there's multiple different yeah, kind of sarcomas. Yeah, that sounds familiar yeah. now that you say that, yeah. Um, so, you know, it was basically like I went to Sloan. They're like, we're starting treatment next week. Go pack up your stuff. And treatment was uh, what? So, you know, they laid it out. We, Me and my mom heard more medical terms that first day than I'd ever. It was like uh, completely and totally overwhelming. You have no idea what's – I feel completely fine. Right. <laughs> it's like, other than your knee was hurting other than a little my, bit. But yeah. it wasn't even really hurting unless I put it all the way up on my butt. Like, right. It was kind of Just like, don't do it. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, like, I'll just, you know. So it, it was the, – the typical protocol was this is what they do. They do 10 weeks of chemotherapy. Um, for osteosarcoma, you do, um, it's a five-week cycle. So you would do two cycles. Um, each cycle consists of three chemotherapies. Okay. Um, and that's kind of how they lump them. So they actually, about 10 years ago or, or so, they used to have to measure your leg for a prosthesis. So for limb salvage surgery. So the biggest thing is they got to remove the tumor. Right. We had caught it early enough. So I was a candidate for limb salvage surgery. They wouldn't need to amputate. Okay. Um, 15 years ago, the only solution for osteosarcoma was to amputate. Well, didn't you say that there was like six doctors that told you? Yeah. That you so, but should? that was not prior. This was, we'll get into that. That was because of something else. Oh, okay. <laughs> but they, at this point, they, when I got there, they're like at your stage, we caught this so early. I have no, I've, you know, I, we have full confidence that in eight months, you'll be able to go back to school. And right. that was reassuring, but um, because unfortunately, a lot of osteosarcomas now, the later, the more, if you get the tumor and it goes into the muscle, or if you break your, your, your any kind of bone that has the cancer in it, that's when the mortality rate goes up very high because it, it kind of metastasizes and goes all over the body. Oh, gotcha. So mine was still localized in the bone. Um, so to them... That's the best place. Okay. So they said, all right, we're going to do 10 weeks of chemo. And the reason they do that is because about 10 years ago, they used to have to measure your leg and send out and get a prosthesis especially made. Now everything's on a shelf and, you know, the, they could pr probably do surgery the next day. But they found that if they do chemo prior to surgery, they can actually shrink the tumor and get better margins, which is areas around the tumor that are clean. Okay. So they found they're like, if we can shrink the tumor and, and almost have better results from surgery, why wouldn't we? So then you do surgery after 10 weeks, and then you have 20 weeks or four rounds of precautionary chemotherapy. And the reason they do that is because osteosarcoma will come back in another form. It usually comes back in a sarcoma of the lungs, and that's when it gets very difficult to treat. So what they do is they do this precautionary chemo to basically... Try to kill just, whatever... If there is microscopic traces of sarcoma in your body, like we are going to find and destroy anything possible because unfortunately most most children that don't make it from osteosarcoma it's because it will come back in the lungs okay and um, unfortunately it it happens often oh really like what kind of rate you think um i, I don't exactly know it, there's different can, cancers have different stages the the later stages of osteosarcoma if you have any kind of um uh if it's in your lungs to start with your, your mortality rate goes down a lot um the chemotherapy that we use for osteosarcoma has come a long way, but even now, it, it's, I would say osteosarcoma based on, I think
think there's only a, now only about about a 70% survival rate. Oh, wow. Um, the big marker is five years. Once you make it five years, you're usually in the clear. In the clear, all right. Yeah. What are uh, we at now? Oh, God, I just celebrated six Oh, years. nice. Okay. A year plus one. Woohoo! Uh, seven well, years this June is going to be my leg surgery, which is crazy. That's, yeah. I know. It's, I can't wait to get into know, this. Yeah. 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 So, um, all right. So this is, this is like where my story is like, okay, like we're going to do this. Like this is, this is the plan. You know, I'm the athlete. I'm like, okay, this is the plan. This is like the preseason, the game. Right. And then we're going to go back to school. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And for me, Marist was kind of like always that end goal. I left Marist. I felt perfectly fine. And it was kind of, I had this thing in the back of my, like that was always like the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm going back to Marist. That's it. That's the end line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have to tell all my friends, school, everything, like, I got to go. So I, un- I pack up, leave home, uh, or leave to move home. We start treatment. Um, I get a Metaport implanted in my chest, um, which one of your other, your other interviews talked about. But I guess the best way to de- describe it is it's almost like a contact case that they plant in your chest. And okay. it's connected to... Um, really major veins by your heart. And what they do is they'll access it with a butterfly needle. So if you think about it, um, almost like about like a hummingbird where the beak is the needle and then the wings flap out. Right. So that you would, I would have two needles in my chest at the same time. One would usually have fluid. One would have chemotherapy. Okay. Um, so I got three different kinds of chemotherapies. Um, the first week is the hardest. It's actually two chemotherapies in one day. Um, mostly what happens is, is they, they poison you and then they flush it out. They'll poison you, and then they flush, flush it out. out. Um, because I was bigger, you know, when I when I got diagnosed, you know, on 5'10", you know, we were, I was in, like, peak physical condition at that point. I easily weighed 170 pounds, easily. So a lot of it in, in, in pediatrics is weight-based chemo. So based on your weight, yeah, is you this weighed, is how yeah, much. That much? All that muscle. So I got yeah. a, I got a lot of chemo. You know, they used to bring it out in like big. Think of like a growler. It was like a growler of this one chemo. I got high high, do, high dose uh, methotrexate. Comes out and it's like neon yellow, in a growler, glass growler. Neon yellow. Yeah, like and they hang it upside down and it's a gravity drip. So, like, it's not like it goes through the IV machine and, like, pumps into you. It has to go through gravity. It would take, like, eight hours. Oh. And you could just see it going down. I thought one my of, pick line was it, bad. That's not even close. One, um, one of them was bright red. I had a, a Dr. Rubison was bright red. But So this is where, unfortunately, things went a little bit, like, off rail. So after my first round of chemotherapy, um, I got a lot because I weighed 170 pounds. Um, the second week of our cycle is um, what called when you're neutropenic, which means that your neutropenes are, are below a certain point. And your neutropenes is kind of a blood level that, um, let's say, rates your immune system. Okay. So when your immune system is below a certain thing, that's basically what chemotherapy does. It kills all the bad and good, good. cells all in right. your body. So when it kills off all the good cells, your body really doesn't have immune system to fight anything off. So you have to usually stay at home for a week. You have to be very careful. Um, you can't go to crowded places. You can't eat any kind of, um, you know, uh, deli meat or any kind of food from that a buffet. That could have, like, bacteria. They, tell, they actually say don't eat fresh fruits and vegetables that could have um, 
like pesticides or even soil and dirt. They basically say like eat processed foods yeah. during this one week. We don't we don't encourage that all the time, but during this week, like you just have to be very safe. You got to eat smart, right? Because your body doesn't really have anything to fight. Um, so after my first round of chemotherapy, I really didn't feel good. Vomiting, diarrhea. I remember I called the doctor and I'm like, I really don't feel good. And he's like, sweetie, you're not supposed to yeah. feel good. But I really, I really didn't feel good. And one morning I Another woke up. Another moment where it was like something's definitely uh, not right. Or yes. Thursday morning. Um, so it was a, uh, let's say I got chemo on a Monday. I was at Sloan all week. The following Thursday, it was during my first neutropenic week. I was at home and I wake up and I'm completely convulsing. Mom takes my temperature, 104 fever. That's when we had the oh shit moment. Get into the car. And, and you know Long Valley's about an hour and 15, an hour and 20 minutes outside the city. So my mom is Booking going, it, yeah. and I am in the most pain I've ever been in my whole life. I think I was almost delusional. I literally felt like s there was someone ripping a hole in my stomach. It was just I was curled up in the back seat. I was dry heaving. I remember I, I was screaming for my mother in the Holland Tunnel to call an ambulance. I'm like, just pull over and I'll call an ambulance. And she's like, I can't. I didn't even let her park the car at Sloan because you have to park in a parking garage. Like I, a, I made it pull up outside of Sloan and I crawled in the front door. Oh my God. And they saw me and I was like, I need to get to the ninth floor, which is the pediatrics. And the security guard's like, all right, take a seat. And thank goodness a doctor walked by and they're like, no. no. So they got a wheelchair. They got me upstairs. By the time my mom got up, they were trying to get an IV. We couldn't get an IV in. Um, I was in intensive care overnight and... They were concerned. They didn't really know what was going on. They had me on some painkillers, and I was still in pain. I was very delusional. They couldn't get a blood pressure. It was a lot of things weren't going correct, right. and they were very confused because I had just had chemo once, and me and my mother didn't really know what was going on because we were not really in the flow yet. We're not, or, you know, the the veteran Sloan goers that we right. got we got to become. <laughs> yeah. um, so unfortunately, the next morning. Um, I pretty much had no, they couldn't get a blood pressure. Um, they had to give me a catheter while I was awake. They had to put an IV in my toe. Um, and they rushed me to the ICU. I um, later found out that I got an infection. It was called tiflitis, which is also called neutropenic um, endercolitis, which basically means everyone has a lot of bacteria in your gut, right? That's right. what like keeps us healthy. Mm -hmm. But when your immune system's working, obviously, it suppresses a lot of that bacteria. My immune system was so shot that bacteria in my gut actually started to take over and multiply. And it causes um, basically inflammation of your intestines. It then ate a hole through my intestines, uh, killed about six feet of my small intestines. It's, what? Um, and then I had, you know, intestinal fluid leaking out in my body. So I went septic which means like your body freaks out because of infection. You lose your blood pressure. I had, um, they had to drain my lungs, two liters of fluid from my lungs. They said it looked oh like my, Coke. Dude, yeah. I, I, I'm <laughs> waiting for it to be like, okay, and then it got better, no, but you keep it listing. It didn't oh. get better. I was in intensive care for about 18, 18 days. They drained my lungs. So when this, when, when it really got bad, they actually pulled my mom aside and they said, you need to call your father and get, or call her father and get him on the next flight. Like, we don't think she's going to make it through the day. And tiflitis has about a 50% mortality rate. And then on top of it, the perforation and everything like that added and added. 
if I wasn't a college athlete, only having chemo one time, 150%, I would not have made it. But for some miraculous reason, right. the same thing you, you were, uh, someone was looking out for us somewhere, and we made it through it. Um, the first time my dad and my sister came to the hospital, they were draining my lungs with a needle that was like, I don't know, like the size of a ruler. They like stuck. And at this point, I'm delirious. I'm on a lot you of drugs. You don't even know what's going on. Yeah. I don't even know what's going on. But they, they, and they, my sister said it looked like Coke. Coming like, out? Like coming out into a big bottle. Um, and at this point in intensive care, my hair's starting to come out. And I'm delirious. I'm like playing with my hair. Like chunks are falling out. Like I have like dread, half dreadlocks, a chunk of hair missing. Oh so my, my mom is just like, let's just shave it. But to tell you the truth, the, the thing I was most afraid of was losing my hair. I don't even remember losing my hair. Like well, it's not even, it's not even a, a thing for me. On a bright me. note. On a bright <laughs> note. So after 18 days, I get to go to the normal hospital. Um, those were a rough 18 days. I had to have my cell, re- cell phone removed because I like was so delirious. I was texting people at three in the morning that I was like surfing and people were really upset and calling my parents <laughs> being like, Is she okay. And they're like, yeah, why? But like, I was texting crazy things. Like, I don't remember. Right. It was on a lot of things. Um, so one of the biggest things is we could not get a good um, CT scan of my stomach because I had so much fluid in my lungs. I couldn't lay down flat or I would quote unquote drowned. They would have to incubate me to be able to lay me down flat. So that was something that we were trying to get to. And my mom really didn't want that. Um, so they, I, they finally got the, the fluid to go down enough so they could do a CT. So they did the CT of the abdomen and that's when they found it had basically ate a hole through my intestines. And that explained really why I wasn't getting better. Um, so then had got rushed into emergency surgery. Um, I was over 18. So I had to sign all my legal waivers. Um, I had a surgeon come in and say, all right, uh, we're going to go in and we're going to remove part of your intestines and you're going to wake up with the ili- an ileostomy. I'm like, okay, like, what's that? He goes, your intestines are going to be sticking out of your body. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, what? And he goes, sign here. So I, I go into the waiting room. That morning I, I had eaten breakfast. They're, they're, they're readying to pump my stomach. As soon as I'm knocked out, they're like, all right, we're pumping her stomach. Um, so... I got surgery. They removed about six, about six feet of my intestines were dead at that point. But you, your intestines were like 30 feet, so six uh, is nothing. Don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> so when I woke up, um, I had a temporary ileostomy. So that what it is, um, if anyone's familiar with a colostomy, that's usually a little bit more common. Um, that's when um, at the end of your colon, basically, they comes out. And it's kind of like folded over, and it kind of like looks like puckered lips. Like it's kind of gross, but that's what it looks like. And you have a bag. So I had an ileostomy, which means it's in the in in the ileum, and the ileum separates the small and the large intestines. So mine getting an anatomy came lesson out, here. yeah. And so I had a bag. So I had the ileostomy for about sixteen months. So so what'd you do? So. Basically, you have a bag. So when you're when you think about your food, it moves through your intestines. Right. Usually, your small intestines is where you get a lot of nutrients, and your large intestines is what draws out a lot of fluid. Okay. So that's what makes like your stool like more solid and hard. So uh, basically, I had like you know intestinal slush and you, like, come into a bag. Around. Yeah, it go into a bag. Um, it's actually more common than than you'd think. A and lot you of people. You go walk around with it, and no one. Yeah. Would so know, you or? have a bag, and I had a cover. Um, and yeah, you just empty the bag. So I didn't, you know. Go number two for 16 months. 
just comes out. You can't control it, which is unfortunate. Um, but, you know, with, like, the bag's closed off and you empty it and, yeah, that cover. And, and there's a lot of people that actually live with that every day. Um, but what about, like, you talked about infections and stuff. Like, wouldn't that be, like, an infection hazard? Or? No, it actually they, – they did that because they didn't trust my intestines to be able to clear and handle all the chemotherapy. So being able to have that was right. – it was kind of like an – a precaution in itself. Um, but unfortunately with that intestinal perforation, I had a lot of other stuff and other infections. So for the rest of the time I was in chemo, I had to be isolated, which meant I got my own room, which is actually like, <laughs> I, I have, I have friends that like are, that I've met through Sloan and, and one of them, a good friend of mine, Clayton, he always gets so mad. He's like, I can't believe you had a we never had a roommate. I'm like, like in the hospital. In mean? the hospital, yeah. I never. Ha I had to have an isolated so room. So from here on out, you were in the hospital the rest of the time. No, but anytime I was inpatient, anytime I was inpatient, um, went back up. So Sloan is one of the only children's hospital in the country that has something called an outpatient chemotherapy, where you drive into the city every single day, get right. chemotherapy, and drive home every night, which is unheard of. Okay. So when I was getting chemotherapy, I was every day in and out. During this whole like catastrophe, I was inpatient. I wasn't going home. I okay. was there. I was at Sloan for a good for a good six weeks. All right. So basically, they're like, let's reevaluate what we're going to do here. Like, exonate the chemotherapy before <laughs> before surgery because we're not going to do that. If they would have given me chemotherapy at that point, I would have died. Like, right. Let's, let's just it was like kill poison, her off. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, all right, let's reevaluate surgery. Let's just go right to surgery. Well, uh, originally they were thinking about maybe trying to save my knee. They were just going to kind of take out the tumor, do a bone graft. But at this point I got I had one day of chemo. So I had no pre-surgical chemo. Right. So that's when a lot of the other surgeons said the chance of infection are so high, why would you try to do the limb salvage surgery? Just amputate. Because anytime you put a foreign body yeah, it, into it, 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 your body's going to try to fight it, right? Exactly. So that's why they said like what you're crazy. Like, why would you even try to do this to this girl? And my, my surgeon said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not amputating. So, got limb salvage surgery. So, I have a full knee, partial femur, partial tibia. Um, it's about an eight-hour surgery. We're going to post the picture in the show notes. Yeah, So, make sure you go over to thehandsandtails.org <laughs> backslash podcast. You, you're not going to want to miss this one. <laughs> and see my bionic leg. Yeah. Um, so, it's a long surgery. And, and like I was telling you before, really, the biggest thing is moving, you know, all the nerves and the muscles, and then they have to saw out your bone and shoot the new, new one, one in yeah. and pin it and then make sure all the, the nerves and stuff go so back. So what was going through your head when people were talking about amputating your leg? <sighs> uh, they, like, can, can, I, can I be honest? Like, I, was, I had a lot of other problems at that point. <laughs> like, and that's the one thing, like, about my story I think that makes it different than a lot of the other athletes is, like, shoot, like, getting – part of my knee removed was was terrible and I was very nervous because my whole life prior to that like all great moments I could think of like We're all sports all sports related and I'm like you're gonna take away my knee like yeah. what am I gonna do moving forward would they so all right let me backtrack no here. No, no, no I have a lot of crap so before you had the chemo mm-hmm were they telling you that you could still play volleyball at some point or uh, no I pretty much knew it like but no one came but out and I, told you? No, or? I got to be honest. Like, when you have cancer, like, they kind of look at you like volleyball is, like, our least priority right now. Like, we just want you to live till next year. Okay. Which makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. And, and like, that was something a lot of my um, – a lot of my oncologists would be like, do you realize, like, how 
intense the situation is. Like, and I'd be like, hey, when are we going to go back to Marist? Yeah. And I'm like, we're trying to save your life. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of always had the attitude like, ah, I'm fine. Like, I never really let it be an option that I was going to die. Like, right. that was never on the table for me. Even after all this stuff I was going through, like, that, well, not an option. Like, what are we doing next? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it was getting, knowing that they were going to remove my knee hard, absolutely. But, like, getting poisoned and having the ileostomy, like, that was worse. So it was kind of like, what, if you have to rank, yeah, yeah if exactly. you have to, like, rank which sucked more, like, I'm going to put that on the, on the lowest sucking scale. Uh, that's when you know you yeah. you've been through some yeah, so, ridiculous stuff. So then I was what? Let's see. I was in a straight leg cast for three months because you know it's kind of in t- a little bit of an intense surgery. Okay. But um, you know rehab. Jr. was awesome, but I don't remember a lot of it because I was still on a lot of painkillers. Um, you know they say bone pain can be one of the the worst pains, so they they definitely made me feel good um and with all the stomach stuff i was on a lot of right all sorts of stuff um, so in case you guys don't know who jr is go to episode three i think it is Three. uh he's a guy that i work for now uh he's a physical therapist but he helped me through my ordeal and getting myself back and he helped uh rihanna too yeah and um you know i was only going to him about once a week because i was going through chemotherapy right. so once i was um about maybe two or three weeks after surgery they're like all right uh let's get into this chemo thing which is the precautionary chemo which that just really like let's be honest that sucks it's like you've just removed my tumor and i don't have cancer and now you're gonna poison me for another 20 weeks and they go oh since you couldn't get that first 10 weeks of chemo we're just gonna tack that on are you kidding so me? I'm like, <laughs> wait so w- w- why did they do that they do it as a precaution they call it precautionary I know, but it had such a negative effect on you the first time <laughs> Why did they do it again? Because they thought maybe now that my intestines were out of my body that... Are you serious? They had... They had that's what they got to do. Like, they, this is the thing. And it's like... And even with my surgeon, when he had to do the, the full knee originally, you know, maybe he was going to try to save my knee. And he goes, I cannot... I have to be more aggressive because if this comes back... Right. Like beca- you said, because, 70%. Yeah. Right. Like, if, if this comes back because we weren't aggressive enough, like... I'll never, you know, that's on me. That's not on you. Right. So, you know, my, my physical therapy was, was not intense. Like I wasn't trying to get back to anything. I had 30 weeks of chemotherapy ahead of me. You know, it was a slow go. I wasn't feeling good. JR was awesome. Like I swear I would be sleeping on that table and he'd be like, lift your leg up. I'm like, no. (laughs) And then he'd be like, try, you know, JR is great. And he like tries to be a little bit, he tried to be like a little stern with me. And I'd like, look at him like. I'm a bald, helpless girl. How can you possibly be mad at me right now? Um, but I said to you, the best thing JR did for me was he, he got me up, he got me walking and walking in a mirror because um, I, I, he wanted me to see and visually make sure I was walking correctly, kind of just learning that technique again. I'll never forget, um, my surgeon was actually on vacation and another surgeon came in to look at my leg and he goes, have you bent this yet? I'm like, no. He literally just takes off the leg brace and just bends, bends my knee. And I was like, you know, the thing hasn't been bent in, in three months. I right. was scared shitless. Yeah. It was fine, but I was like, you know, that almost gave this me a heart putting attack. putting all this stuff in perspective for me. I just got over I my <laughs> knee surgery. But like, I know the feeling, even though mine wasn't nearly as bad as yours. But I was in this brace yeah. for forever. <laughs> couldn't put any weight on it. And then you're right. Like someone yeah. goes to bend it. You're like, whoa, whoa, dude. Yeah, yeah chill like, you're out. like, you're yeah, really nervous. into this one, right? I know. And, and they were like really aggressive. I was like, ah. But um, yeah, so then for the, let's say, uh, gosh, for... 
from the summer, so I had my leg surgery in the end of June. Um, they were able they were able to actually push back my leg surgery until um, right after they had that fundraiser for me in Long Valley, which was awesome. Um, they let me like move it back one week so I could be at that fundraiser. And then, you know, starting in, in July, all the way through uh, January 18th, 2010, I was getting chemo. So uh, from beginning to, to the end, your last chemo treatment, <laughs> what was the timeline? So I would say like mid-July to January. So six, six uh, months, right. six months. Um, and the thing would be is, um, so I would have these five-week cycles, um, but you had to clear every week. You had to clear a certain amount of chemo. So now we're back to driving in and out of the city every day. Um, and I would actually have this fluid backpack I'd have to leave with. Um, so it'd be a backpack, like you think of, and it has, it was like three or four liters of, of IV fluid. And it had a pump in there. And so I was connect 24-7. So like it made this little like noise. Buzzing sound. It wasn't like a buzz, but like when it would push like every 30 seconds, it would push water in. So 24-7, I had to sleep with the backpack next to my bed. Um, you know, we had our favorite gas station off of 78 that we'd stop in because I couldn't make it home from Sloan to Long Valley without you're having like to go to the bathroom. You're like, you're going to become <laughs> the face of the Heads and Tails podcast. I've uh, never heard anything as ridiculous but, uh, as this. Yeah, it's, it's not glamorous. And, uh, you know, th- th- that's the thing I was telling you. Like, oh my God. Uh, every cancer experience is very different. Um, you know, osteosarcoma is intense. Like, you're not really able to function as a real human, um, at all, <laughs> at all. Um, you have good days, you have bad days, um, but, you know, I had a few more infections. I had to get my port removed. Had some blood infection. It was basically like barnacles on the bottom of my port. So they had to take that out. And I had to pick for about two months. Um, and my biggest thing was I would not be able to clear some of these chemos. Like your kidneys at that point are like, Shut. like F you. Yeah. <laughs> this sucks. And so if I couldn't clear a certain level in my, in my urine by a Friday, I'd have to wait a week. Before you got another and bef- treatment. And, and it was like every single time, I'm like, no, because Marist was getting pushed back and it was getting pushed further back. And further. So I actually. So you were still thinking about school during this oh, whole time. Oh, yeah. And that, like my doctors would be like, yeah. Wanted to kill Chill me, like out. strangle me. Yeah. And, but you know what? At the same time, like I think they appreciated that I did have that mentality. Um, right. So I actually opted out of my last round. I cut it five weeks short because I didn't want to be late for school. And at that point, I was like, we're done. I was over it. Right. I was so over it. Un- understandably <laughs> so. When I asked you about what the timeline was, I what I meant to ask was from the time, like from... Oh, when I first got diagnosed? Right. From the, the Very intestine... Get-go. Okay. So my first, my first round of chemo was the week before Easter. So it was about from the week before Easter. So let's say it was middle, end of March. So March through the following January. So, ooh, you know, 10 months. Okay. And Kevin, you have to realize I know people that have been at Sloan for three years. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Like, I know this sounds like my story sounds terrible, but besides all the intestine stuff, like I had a pretty easy ride. Oh my god! I know. I, know. I did, and like I, I'm, I'm grateful for that, and you know, I'm grateful to, to honestly to be here and be able to talk about it because, you know, I would see, we would see um, in pediatrics, like you see a lot of kids, and at first it's difficult to get used to because kids are crying. Um, but they're so resilient. Like these, these kids don't even know any different. But you know, it's really sad. You see kids come in and the next day, you know, they have an amputation. You know, it's it's hard. Like right. I when you think about it, like I actually really made out pretty lucky. Like the fact now that I you can't even tell that something's wrong with me. Like that's someone's definitely that's looking out lucky. for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. So yeah, it was about ten months. And then I went back to school. All right, so <laughs> 
But everyone, everyone listening, <laughs> process all that. Maybe we'll divide if, if, this into yeah, two episodes. If you, if you episodes. like my medical records, then <laughs> yeah, we might have to divide this into two episodes. If you're There's ever out with me at a bar, all you need to know is if I fall and hurt my leg, you need to tell the medics that I'm not normal and send me to Sloan. Okay. That's my mom's biggest concern: is that I'm gonna like hurt myself, right? And they're gonna like try to send me to a hospital and like they're, they're, they're gonna, gonna do something. Like, yeah. Well, not that they they just won't. You know, they know x-ray my legs, yeah. and they'll be like, oh, God, what the fuck? Listen, yeah. what's that? Okay, I'm still trying to wrap my head around all this, but... All right, so you're you're back at school. Back at school. You're... Completely bald. Com- all right, back at school, completely bald. You're now a sophomore? I'm a junior. So I left spring semester my sophomore year. I missed fall semester my junior year. Okay. I took six credits while going through chemo. The only reason I did that is because if I stopped school completely, I would have to start paying back my student loans. Dude, the world uh, is effed up. And really, I know. um, I did lose my scholarship when I because I became a part-time student, so you have to be a full-time student to to have a scholarship. Um, So I lost that. Well, when you came back, did they? I came back and I actually applied for a full scholarship. And, and I got it. Oh, there you uh, go. All right. Another bright point. I know. I should have got sicker earlier. No. <laughs> That's what my people were like. Damn it. But um, yeah, so when I got back to school, um, believe it or not, even though I wasn't good enough to play anymore on the team, I was still part of the team. Um, but I was actually uneligible as a Division One athlete because Marist had a very, very nice fundraiser for me as well. Oh, and you got. And I got money. And Dude, I disqualified. this makes me hate the NCAA <laughs> even more. It dis- but, you know, I would have never played. No, I and, understand but, that. But just like and, how, the, how yeah, it's I know. set up. And yeah. you know what? They ended up just putting that money towards my senior year housing. So it wasn't like they wrote me a check. But still, it was like, All right. it was kind of, you know, my coach is like, I'm going to battle this. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, battle I'm this. like coach, like this is, you know, hey, he has your back. Not forget, I'm not Reggie Bush here. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I went back to school. I, I got to be honest with you, really hard. In what way? I had this idea that the second I got back to Maris, my life was going to be like way back to normal. Because that's was, what you had your eye oh, on the whole time? Yeah. Or? Um, I had the hardest time trans- transitioning back into quote-unquote normal life. Um, I don't think I ever really understood that I was, I was never – there was no such thing as normal anymore. Like my life was never going to go back the way it was. That doesn't happen. You know, your experiences change you. Um, it yeah, doesn't have sure, to. Yeah. It doesn't have to define you. But guess what? I'm a different person now. Right. And I had. Yeah. To. My mom would ask me like how I'm feeling sometimes. I'm like, I feel okay, but I don't feel the same. You don't. You don't. Yeah. It's not the same. And there's you're never gonna be the same. Um, it, it was. I, I had a lot of towards the end of of treatment. I started to get really bad anxiety. Um, I would get anxious before I would get to treatment because it's like, you know, you can only like walk into a building that's going to poison you so many times before your brain's like, dude, what? don't go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing this for? Um, and I actually, I, I started to get a lot of anxiety about going back to school because I had the ileostomy. Um, they weren't going to reverse it until six months after chemo. Um, and just because they needed to be me, me to be healthy. You know, I, I threw a tantrum. I'm like, no, you're reversing this right now. And they're like, if we try to reverse it now, like, what if the surgery goes bad and you have this for the rest of your life? Like, Ooh, yeah. so I was just really nervous because it, having that ileostomy is such a huge quality of life issue. You think about it every second. Um, so you have a bag. I changed mine every day. A lot of uh, like adults don't necessarily do that, but I was very like, have like slight OCD. So it was like really, un- it's part of my schedule. <laughs> um, but I had a lot of emotional, emotional issues. I went through um, kind of bad breakup 
on my 21st birthday while I was going through treatment. Someone couldn't handle it anymore. Oh. So we're just going to skip over that. But that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Like at that point, I was just like, Ugh. Yeah, one thing after another. Yeah. yeah. So it was hard transitioning back. I was, I was single for the first time. I was bald. I didn't wear a wig. You have a bag. I had a bag. You couldn't see it, but it was like, you know, still self-conscious about it. Right. Um, I was always such a nerd. And then I would like didn't even feel like going to class because I kind of had that chemo brain. I literally went, I got my pick line removed and I drove to Marist. They were like, you shouldn't go back to school this early. I'm like, what? I didn't even hear you. Like, right. I always use this joke. So one of the – chemotherapy, unfortunately, for little children does a lot of damage. I was at least an adult at this point, so less damage for me. Um, but one of the, the chemos I get has hearing loss. So I can't hear, hear after a certain frequency. Um, so I can't hear, like, a thermometer that beeps. Doesn't I can't hear it at or all. Or, like, a fire alarm? I can hear that. Okay. They make, they make those pretty – they're pretty okay. Okay. Um, but like I, a lot of times if I'm watching a movie with someone, I'll be like, wait, wait, what'd they say? What'd they say? Like oh. I, I hear the noise, but I have a hard time. Um, certain sounds get switched. Um, so when, when they were like, you really shouldn't go back to school. I'm like, what? what? I can't hear you. Like, yeah. Go, Bye. <laughs> I'm going to Maris. <laughs> Literally can't hear uh, yeah. you. <laughs> so it was just hard. It was hard transitioning back, kind of just getting back into the swing of things, figuring out like how I'm going to use this experience to benefit me, not to find me. You know, it's really hard to tell people your story without them being like, oh, my God. Yeah, you, that's you. Yeah, oh, that's my God, are you okay? Thing, yeah. Like, I feel really bad. And it's like, don't feel bad. I'm fine now. But it, it, took a, it took a few years to kind of figure out how to work it. And believe it or not, like, I remember um, my mom saying, like, well, why do you got to even tell anyone? And like that's not me. Anyone who knows me, like well, I don't go, just keep yeah, my I don't keep my mouth shut. When you go through something shut. like yeah, when you go through something as traumatic as that experience, it's like it's something that's almost always on your mind. I'm sure. And when people, yeah, I, I play. I have the same battle yeah, that I face too. Like, like I, I I meet someone new, and without a doubt, five minutes later, I'm telling them about my head because in a bar, I, it's like it's and, the best. Yeah, part. this the scar, <laughs> but. It, I, I don't know. I, it's yeah. hard for me to explain because, yeah, like, oh, don't let it define you. Don't, I'm like, but it's but part it's of who matter. I am. Yeah. 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 So I kind of, it, and it's hard, and it's like, uh, you know, so I got back into the swing of things. I did. Keeping with volleyball was great because it, it, it kept me to that, that defined schedule. Um, I actually, like, practiced. You know, I wasn't jumping, but I was practicing. My team needed me, actually. They, my senior year was like a disaster. Like one, our one setter tore ACL, our other setter had mono. It was. So they needed. They, they to needed me to practice. Fill in, yeah. Yeah, and actually, my senior game, one of the athletic trainers was like trying to contact Sloan, and like seeing if I could get approval to play my senior year, my senior game. And I'm like, they don't even know I'm playing. Yeah. Like, do don't, not call them. Don't blow my don't cover. Don't call them. <laughs> yeah. You know, they thought they were trying to be really nice. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, no. Well, what about the NCAA, too? They'd be I'm all like, over yeah, that. Yeah, the NCAA would come in, like the police. Investigating matters, like, yeah. How dare that bald girl play? <laughs> um, but now, my senior year, I wasn't bald. I had, like, a little crew cut. So um, you say that being around volleyball helped. And I worked for the Rutgers football team after I was told I couldn't play football anymore. And at some points in time, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of cool because I get to throw a football around still. But at the same time, when game day rolls around, I'm like, oh, man, I wish I was playing. Then, like, you think about feeling bad for yourself and this and that. So how did you stay positive throughout that experience and get something out of it? Because I don't necessarily think that getting hurt and then being around the thing that you love most that you can't do anymore is, like, necessarily a good thing. No, it, and I think it's just at what point in your life – 
are you at? You know, uh, for example, your podcast with the um, the BMX rider. He yeah, just, Jay. after a while, he's like, I don't want to be around this. It, it's right. causing more hurt than That's good. what I was thinking of when I just said and that. I, yeah. And I think you kind of have to weigh those options. Um, for me at that point, like I was a Maris volleyball player and I was still a Maris volleyball player regardless if I mm-hmm. was able to play or not. Um, or I still Rapunzel. did everything. Yeah, like yeah. You, just, you just do it. And I think being part of the team, actually, you know, I was lifting, doing everything with them. I'll never forget my first conditioning back. We were doing pull-ups and I had, you know, over the course of treatment, whew, when I was in the hospital, I lost uh, 50 pounds. Like I was Skeletor. My sister called me Dobby the Hell's Elf from Harry Potter. That's I know, pretty right? mean. It's okay. I still love her. Um, I kind of look like Dobby. That's it's okay. I did. <laughs> um, but we we were doing pull ups, and we had like the uh, the exercise bands to help uh, help us. But like, you know, I like repped out like thirty five pull ups. Right, because you weighed fifty pounds. And my coach is like, "Do you see that? You have no excuses." <laughs> right. <laughs> to everyone so, else on their team. Yeah, they used But it was you. great. Like we had such fun time. You know, we would my my side of my team would lose, and like instead of running, I'd be like, "Coach, like I can't, sir, I can't run." And he'd be like, "Ray." Go do ten push-ups. So, Everyone else run. <laughs> so, what were your initial, like, what were your limitations put on you by your doctor and your prosthes- prosthetic? Prosthetic. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. Uh, so really, it's high impact, high impact, and a lot of um, quick movements, okay. lateral movements, because I don't have any of those ACL, ACL LCL, yeah. and I, so it's like really not meant to make a lot of. It's got lateral, one direction. Yeah, yeah. one direction. Um, and it's the a great high, band. And the high impact, um, there, there's two reasons behind that. One, for wear and tear on the, on the knee joint. The more wear and tear you get, the quicker I'm going to have to get it replaced. I will have to get it replaced sometime in my life. Um, we don't know when. It, it's really, they haven't had prosthesis like this out long enough to really know the longevity. Right. Um, and the second thing is um, the titanium is a lot denser than your bone. So a lot of high impact where it's shot into my femur and pinned if for some reason it were to fracture my bone, because it's like that titanium against the bone, your bone's like really actually very flexible and takes a lot of impact. Yeah. Well, when you have titanium in there, it kind the, of messes yeah, that rigid, whole idea yeah. up. So if I were to fracture my femur, I would have to get the whole prosthesis out, let my femur heal, heal with like spaghetti leg. I don't even know what I would do. <laughs> like if you think about it, I don't yeah, even know yeah. how my leg would, yeah. yeah, nothing. And then I'd have to re-get the surgery. Like, yeah. Don't so do that. no running, um, no jumping. I still kind of jump a little bit, but like not <laughs> intentionally. But like I do jumping Lean jacks. On one side, I do yeah. jumping jacks. That's not like high impact to them is like marathon running. Okay. Or playing volleyball at a high level. Uh, my vertical sucks now. It's so funny. I play in the volleyball league now just for fun, and one of my teammates this season is new. And he's like, man, like. You look like you jump. You would jump really high, but then, like, and I'm like, yeah. And then I get off like two inches. He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I have an explanation. I said, but as long as you're intimidated, that's all that matters. Just send him this episode. <laughs> I know. It's like, jeez. Ah. Yeah, he's gonna feel like a douche after. <laughs> but anyway, um, okay. So you you received a, a an award. Was it your senior year? Um, Senior year, the yeah. Wilma Rudolph Student Athlete Achievement Awards. Have you heard of that? No, I know <laughs> I didn't either <laughs> until they asked me to write a paper for it. Like my junior, so you apply. For uh, yeah, it. you okay. apply. You write a paper. Um, the athletic academic advisor at Marist um, was awesome. She she was really great, and she's like, I really just want you to write a paper for this. I'm like, okay. So all 
Division one schools are eligible. An athlete at Division one school, one athlete, you can submit, you know, a paper, and then there's only six winners a year. So we get the call in the fall that I won, and she Be was so excited, and I'm like, odds, oh my always, god! Yeah. So um, they flew me to Dallas um, for a reception. It was really cool. My my mom and my dad went. My coach went, and then um, the um, Alyssa Gates was my athletic academic advisor at Marist. And we go, and they have this big reception, and it's a, like a lot of the athletic academic advisors are there, um, and we speak. And I got to tell you, I went first. I didn't go that detailed into my story. It was more just like a thank you because they make this little video. Wow, every other story was like really sad compared to mine. A lot of coming from foster homes and seeing kids get shot and parents being alcoholics, drug addicts. Um, one kid was on track from Tennessee. Both of his parents died in a car accident, and then he lived with his aunt, and then she died, and it was just like unbelievable stories. Every there wasn't a dry eye in the house the whole night, and like right. I was the only person with two parents that had any kind of money. Like wow. it was, it was really eye-opening, and like that's something like I've kind of learned from my experiences. And one thing I always tell people, like they'll be like, "Oh, like you're a survivor of cancer, survivor." It's like you know, like. Well, what was I going to do? Like, you just do what you got to do. Like, it's not like I was like, am I going to decide to get chemo today or not? Like, you do what you have to do. You right. go on autopilot. It's a survival mechanism. Every human has it. Mm -hmm. But everyone battles something, whether you come from some family issues or you had a head injury or you struggle in school or you have bullying. Like, Everyone's waking up story, every day, yeah. you're yeah. a survivor of something. So, like, just because I went through this – doesn't make anyone's um, experiences less important. That's the delivery man who just wants to buzz everyone's apartment, and I'm not letting him in. Oh, okay. Because, like, let's say someone's not home upstairs. They'll right. just buzz me to think I'll let him in. I'm not oh. letting him in. <laughs> so let's talk about where we're about to go. So we're about to go to your spin class that you're teaching. Yes. So this is your transition to – life after sports and you couldn't do you can't do impact things anymore yeah, so, so like, how did you become a, a spin instructor so before you know being an athlete you know you could go do some kind of like i would love like interval training on the treadmill 15 minutes and you crank it out hills but you could get a good workout right um after surgery i kind of had to learn like new ways to um to to get a good work on it it's not as easy anymore you got to be a little bit more creative um you know, I can elliptical. I, I like the gazelle better. The elliptical, like the, the strides for me are too small. Um, so I've kind of adopted like some new things. Um, I love yoga. I do do a lot of like, I'll do like cardio lifting. I've recently got into Pilates Reformer and it is unbelievable. It is the hardest class ever. I highly recommend it to anyone. We have reformers in uh, physical therapy. The we best, use them all the the time, best yeah. thing about it is um, the woman who teaches it, um, she does like more of a... Um, a cardio version, but it's so isolated for each side of my leg that I have to use my bad leg. A lot of times, like if I'm squatting in a class, like as much as I try, yeah. I, I compensate with my right with my right leg. Um, so I got into spinning as, um, you know, a low impact, high cardio workout. It's really uh, the best of both wor worlds. Um, and to be honest with you, it's the only thing I do that I don't have to. Um, do modify. any modify yeah. and if I know the you feeling, would yeah. never know and like uh, is that terrible to say like i could go to spin class and like uh, we're gonna go to spin class tonight no one knows right no one knows that half my medals that half my leg is metal 
it's just, it's me. I can excel at it. It's honestly, it kind of gives me like that leadership. It's like I'm the captain of the freaking Yeah, I can't wait. Class. I can't wait to see you. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah, it's cool. I'm going to be shouting at you from my microphone. I'm going to be taking Snapchats. And so, um, you know, it's just, a, it's a way for me to kind of channel that athlete leader into something productive. Um, you know, it actually, it takes a lot of effort, though. Um, at where I work, New York Sports Club, uh, at Spin Instructors, we make our own own playlists, own workouts. Um, I really like everything to be planned, as maybe you can tell. I never wing it. <laughs> and nothing is winged in my class. So it takes me a good hour and a half to make a class. So it does take a lot of time. Um, and But I only teach once a week. And the reason I do that is because the rest of the week I like to do my own thing. Right. Um, if I taught multiple times, you know, spinning is such an awesome cardiovascular and leg workout, but that's really it. You know, you really, I really believe in like, um, balancing just like being a multi-sport athlete. Like if you spin every day or three days a week, like, yes, will you be in great shape? But you know, I think you, you get more benefit from kind of changing it up and doing multiple things. Like I think one of the best compliments of spinning is Pilates and yoga. Okay. Um, so like a, a strength piece to it. Yeah. And, and it's like one thing I've, I've kind of learned more, um, you know, just getting older and not necessarily being an athlete to compete is really getting that, like the flexibility and really like leaning out your muscles and, and body and core strength, I think is, is pretty important. Awesome. So. All right. We're going to wrap this up. So we're not late to class. And, uh, so these last three questions, um, what would it. your best day ever consist of? A beach, a book, and a margarita. All right, you're a beach girl. Oh gosh, Lady, I put like a, a empty beach, yep. an empty beach. All right, no one. Like, <laughs> I just want a good book. I'm a huge reader. I read every night. So, what's your favorite book? Ooh, ever? Yeah. Oh, that's hard. I got to be honest. Um, my favorite book is probably called. It's called The Discovery of Witches. Discovery of Witches. It's really good. It's a. It's a, it's a fiction. A, it is yes. Okay. Unless you believe in witches. Okay. I guess I could go either way. If you, if you, I would love for <laughs> we'll you to We'll see how you teach this, this <laughs> class, and then I'll know if there's real witches or not. Um, all right, so then what three things are you most grateful for? Um, definitely, like, my support system. I know that that's a big theme on your podcast, too. Friends, yep. family. My friends never treated me one ounce differently when I was sick, and that's the best thing I could recommend for people who are listening to maybe know someone that's going through something difficult. Like, they are still the same person mentally and emotionally. Um Yes, do you want to support them? Yes, ask them questions, but don't treat them differently. Right. It, they're still the same person. Um, definitely my health. I have to be grateful for that and the fact that I'm able to do so much more than I thought I was. Mm -hmm. You know, when I first got diagnosed and the surgery, I was like, oh, my gosh, what all am the, I going to do? Think about all the things you can't do. Right? Exactly. And, you know, one thing I can't do anymore is ski. I used to love skiing. But you know what? At the end of the day, like, I would rather have a leg than ski. And right. that's something that I think – going through my treatment, kind of like I said before. Perception is reality. Yeah, like, you know, yep. did it stink to get my leg surgery? Yeah, but, like, I some had some way other things that, that were worse. Um, and finally, my career. Um, one thing I would recommend for people transitioning as well is I'm in sales. It's a very competitive workforce. Like, I'm, you know, I have teammates, but they're really my competitors. Um, I go to work every single day, and I'm competing to be ranked to make money. Right. So like and being an it's athlete, like yeah. every day is a competition. Sometimes I wish I could just wake up and like go to an office and they tell me what to do. Yes. But I think it's just that initial, it's like that drive. And in my, you know, I haven't been in sales that long, but student or athletes in general, 
do so well. So if anyone's kind of like has no idea what they want to do and they're an athlete, look into sales because sales managers, they look for student athletes. You have good discipline. You're competitive. You have really good work-life balance. You're just, you're, you have a lot of skills that they look for. Um, so it's a great kind of, if you don't know what to do, a way to kind of inner, you know, focus. Um, so definitely, I, I like my career. I'm, I'm lucky I've done well. Um, so I'm pretty grateful for it. Awesome. Great advice. Mm-hmm. Um, so last question, what's your personal definition of perseverance? This is a hard one. I think that, like this word, I was kind of like thinking about it before. I don't necessarily use that word that much, but I really think that like, and I love how you always say, you can't control what happens to you, but you control your mind. And I think for me, perseverance is every single day finding something that's positive and something that makes it worth it. Um, you know, you can have X, Y, and Z um, going wrong, but you do have things that are positive in your life and that's what's going to make you persevere. And if you're constantly focusing on that, the bad stuff doesn't seem so bad anymore. Right. Um, one thing that, that I think my treatment has really taught me is just perspective. Um, you know, I could be stressed. I've been having a really hard day, but you know what? I've had a lot worse days. Exactly. I've had yeah. a lot worse days. And you know what? You know, it's, it's work is tough and clients and doctors are being really difficult. You know what? I've been through way worse. Bring it on. Right. And like that's kind of <laughs> been my – and I'll say that. Like I had a doctor the other day who got, had to get his appendix out and he was like, oh, God, like my scar. And I like looked at him and he goes – he goes, he's like, oh, shit. He's goes, you're like the worst person to complain to. And I'm like, yeah, but you can still complain to me because you know what? I know what you're going exactly, through. Exactly, yep. Do I have sympathy for you? Absolutely. But like at the same time – Can I make fun of you? Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's the biggest thing. I, I think the the best thing I love about this 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 – podcast is one listen to your body listen to your body and say something because guess what like high school sports and college sports you're in such a small realm life is so much bigger right and the older we get the more like you, you know realize we realize that, that yeah, and you're like yeah. gosh i was so obsessed and there's so much more to life but at that time it's, it's good to have that yeah. passion um and two is is you don't need to not be an athlete anymore you could do CrossFit. I go to the gym. I, it's part of my day going to the gym. Like it's you don't ever have to really stop doing what you love, and it's never over. Yeah, it's there's adaptive be, sports out there. Yeah, everything, and and that's the biggest thing. Like for me, it's transitioning. Guess what? Is your life going to be the same? Nope. But that's life, and right. things change, and you have to accept those changes, and you have to figure out what your new normal is going to be, and you embrace it because what else are you going to do? Exactly. Like that's it. What else are you going to do? <laughs> but find a way. Thank you so much. Rihanna, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I'm ready to take your class. Are you ready to Hopefully get your I butt kicked? I didn't make you late. Um, no, we're yes. going to be well, – no, we're totally fine. But, like, you better be careful because if you get hurt. Oh, if, no, I'm if fine. If Kevin does not have a podcast for several weeks. <laughs> it's because I hurt my knee. Because it hurts his knee. <laughs> no, my physical therapist said I'm good, so. And my doctor told me cycling is something I could do. Yeah, but this is, like, badass cycling. The witch over here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Welcome to the seventh inning stretch of the Heads and Tails podcast. After you buy your peanuts and Cracker Jacks, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and leave us a five-star review to help us spread our message further and further each week. Also, be sure to find us on Instagram at Heads and Tails. Heads is in multiple heads, the letter N, and then Tails spelled T-A-L-E-S. Same thing on Twitter, add a P-O-D on the end of the handle, and also like us on Facebook to stay up to date on all upcoming interviews. For detailed show notes on this episode, Go over to headsandtails.org backslash podcast backslash 32. And next up to bat, part two with Rihanna Kutkowski.
<laughs> Always tells the truth. I know. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm ready now. There's no more echoes. So where we s- we left off. All right, so let me do Wait, this little second intro. Okay. Well, do you need a second intro for I mean, two episodes? I mean, it's just going to be like... So you know what that's you're That's true. Well, you it's more that like, oh, we're coming back from our Cycling. spin class. I made it. And she was a witch. <laughs> you ever see the movie uh, Monty Python, The Holy Grail? Yeah. You know how they try to prove that that one woman is a witch? I don't remember that part. I just remember the part with the troll on the bridge. Oh. I, have th- I haven't seen it in a long time. Oh, like, wait, the night or like when they chop his legs off or... What, when's the thing like where you have to like know the the password to get over the bridge or something? Oh, I, f- I know what you're talking about, but I forget like what the password is. Yeah, it's something stupid. But when we were talking about witches okay. and when I was thinking about this part two of the this episode, I thought of the time when they're trying to prove that this one woman is a witch. And one guy in, this is something about like floating in water or something or, and they're like, what floats in water? And the one guy's like, very small rocks. I was like, <laughs> are you freaking kidding me? It's one of my favorite answers ever, though. Very small walk, very small rocks. Rocks, yeah. Like, obviously a rock, no matter how big it is, it's going to sink. But he was just, you know. Okay, not that funny. But anyway. It's okay. <laughs> We're back from uh, New York Sports Club in Hoboken um, after I just took Rihanna's spin class. And I was sweating up a storm. I think I was one of two guys in there. I was front row, though, so I got a front row seat to see how, you know, prepared and intense and... Motivating. Motivating, yes, that uh, Rihanna is. I really enjoyed the class. I realized that my knee injury has really depleted my aerobic system, (laughs) but I survived, other than my butt being a little bit sore. That's okay. That happens. Yeah. You got to build up the, the butt muscle. I used to have... Oh, trust me. My butt is big enough. But I used to have riding shorts that I couldn't find. It's okay. And my shoes It's like, you know, like in lacrosse, how they like your arms or even like volleyball. Like when you first playing volleyball, like your arms get really red when you start to pass. Yeah. You're like, your body just builds up like a resistance. You know, I think in karate, they like chop each other's arms to like build up kind of like the, I don't know if it's the muscle or like the tissue or the tolerance. You just get tough. It's like, it's like the same calluses. thing with like the inside of your, your butt cheeks. Oh, I got you. Okay. You just got to ride a few more times. Yeah, the saddle. <laughs> I will move on after that comment. But <laughs> so, um, Rihanna recently uh, participated, and you kind of organized a team, right, for the Cycle for Survival event that was run by Equinox? Yes. Yeah, so, what it is, is it's a actually a national fundraiser now. Um, and it's basically a partnership with Equinox and Memorial Sloan Kettering, and where at Equinox's they have. They close the gym for for a whole weekend, and they do several sessions of four-hour block cycling. Um, And people can have teams, and you raise money. And last year was my first cycle for survival. My best friend Megan Simpson invited me to go because one of her coworkers had a team. And we went, and it was such an amazing experience. Um, So I knew right from last year that I wanted to do a team this year. Um, So back in September is actually when I started the team, when they contacted me. Um, And I picked a riding date, and then... We just started to to raise some money, you know, through social media, through coworkers, um, and it's just a really fun event. It basically just raises money that directly goes to the Memorial Sloan Kettering to help fund um, research for rare cancers. Um, and the, the, unfortunately, the majority of cancers are still 
considered rare cancers, but it really helps a lot of the, the doctors there um, with all their clinical trials because insurance companies don't cover a lot of the stuff and it becomes very expensive. So. Right. Interesting. And also when we, we went to uh, Texas, Arizona after our For your sweet potato fries. Class. Yeah, I love their sweet potato Next fries. Next time you come to Hoboken, we got to go to somewhere else. There's a million restaurants there. Not that I didn't like that. That was really yeah, good. But I, you're I'm very like, closed-minded. You've yeah. only been there. That's true. you got to expand your palate. And there's one uh, like pancake wrap place. I had a pancake wrap once. Oh, at Stacks. Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. That was amazing, too. Okay, that's good. But we, there's like 900 restaurants. We got to yeah. keep expanding your palate. I think I went to a crepe place as well. Oh, there, there you go. That's good too. A crepe place. Um, that's pretty much it, I think. Okay. All right, next time. Um, but anyway, at dinner, you were talking about your friend Clayton, mm-hmm. and you said that he also participated in. Yes. This. So um, I met Clayton through something else I do at Sloan, um, which was um, working with an organization to open a teen and uh, young adult lounge at Sloan. And it was pretty amazing. Um, the first meeting I went to, there was about 15 young adults there. And the whole idea is at Memorial Sloan Kettering and a lot of cancer centers across the country, um, if you have a pediatric cancer or if you're under the age of 18, you get treated in pediatrics. But if you are 18 in one day and happen to have a cancer that is treated by adult oncologists, you're treated as an adult. And, you know, that 15 to 25-year-old age range is very, it's very odd. It's very different. You're not really a kid and you're not really an adult. Um, And a lot of cancer centers in America don't really have a focus on that um, particular yeah, demographic. And it also is, is the lowest cancer rate in all of the demographics is age 15 to 25 has the lowest cancer incident. So it's also a very small population. So unfortunately, a lot of me- uh, money gets diverted elsewhere. Um, but an organization I work with called Teen Cancer America raises awareness for the lack of teen, young adult specific therapy. So I was working with Sloan to open a lounge, which is specifically for that age group. And about a year before it opened, they started doing a committee where they asked some survivors to come and help out. Because you went through that, yeah. Yeah. So um, especially being 19 or 20 to 21 treated in pediatrics. Right. So the first meeting I went to was there was 15 people there, um, and only five of us were treated in pediatrics. Yeah, did you say that on the the first part? Of the podcast that you were treated in pediatrics? I forget. Yes, I think I did because um, osteosarcoma is a pediatric cancer. Right. So even if you got it at older age, um, the other gentleman that you interviewed that did the layups for life. Right, he Dan had, Exter, um, yeah. Yep, he had a pediatric cancer. So when he was 27, he was still treated in pediatrics. Got it, okay. So we were treated in the same area even though technically we were adults. Right. But let's say you got um, something like you know ovarian cancer at 20. You know, they have oncologists that treat that in adults, so I would have had to have been treated with adults. Right. So when I went to this committee, there was 10 young adults my same age that were all treated as adults, but at a very young age, like 18 to 21. Um, One gentleman had uh, testicular cancer when he was 18. So his roommate was 41, and he couldn't have his parents there. He said it ended up getting him an internship. Because he got, built this great relationship <laughs> with this guy. But, you know, when you're 18, That's like, you're funny. not really an adult. Right. And Yeah, you're in that kind of between yeah, stage. Yeah, you're kind of like in that between stage. And especially I'm 26, and I still feel like a kid. So. I don't know. And think about it now, like, how much more prevalent social media is. Right. And it's so much more isolating now when you can, like, scroll through Instagram and, and see, see everyone having so much fun. Yeah, and, exactly. like, you're sitting in the, the hospital. The reel of everyone's day. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? 
I got my first iPhone when I first got diagnosed. Like that's when it was first coming out. But it's 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 even like more isolating now for like a, especially a high schooler to be missing out on all Snapchat that. Snapchat parties. Yeah. yeah. So having this lounge, like hopefully you can meet other people your age because we never knew each other existed. Like when I was at pediatrics, there was only one other gentleman that was 26 years old, and that was it. All these other committee members that I met, they were at Sloan at the same time, but they were being treated on their floors and I never knew they existed. Right. So anyway, that's how I met Clayton. The first meeting, he walked in. Tall, he's about 6'2", six, 6'3", six, very skinny. He was pretty sick at the time, or as sick as in going through chemotherapy. You can, t- you can identify the kind once you've been one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the no, no eyebrows, no eyelashes. That's the perfect sign. Dead giveaway. Uh, yeah, the dead giveaway. Um, and right after the meeting, I went up to him because he did share that he had osteosarcoma. And I went up to him and I said, you know, Rihanna, I had it as well. Um, and we just instantly kind of clicked. And I'll never forget the first thing we talked about is, is how when they flush your port, which means they have to, at the end of the day or whenever they're changing medicines or fluids or chemotherapies, they have to flush your port with um, saline solution, which basically just means like wash it out or clean it out. And because of where the port is located, when they flush it out, you get this salty, cold taste in your throat. And it's very uh, kind of undescribable unless you've, Unless you've been through that. Right. And we kind of were talking about it and we both kind of like got the chills at the same time. And just having someone be like, oh my gosh, I get what you're saying. Right. Was really um, something I'd never experienced before. Because like how many kids your age have gone I through d- what you I went through, I don't know right? anyone. Um, there was, when I was going through Sloan, there was someone actually from Long Valley that had osteosarcoma. Um, she was maybe about five or six years older than me. She lived up on the mountain, and she worked at Sloan while I was going to Sloan. Um, her name's Casey. She was really nice, and she, I, she would check in with me every once in a while, but I don't know. It was just with Clayton. I, right. it, so, it was yeah. something instantaneous. So we've become friends, and um, when I started this Relay for Life team, I came up with the clever name of instead of like pedal to the metal, pedal with the metal because we I have a oh, titanium I like it, yeah. yeah. So because Clayton had the same surgery and the opposite leg as me, um, I immediately was like, Clayton, like, do you want to be part of my team? And then when I got T-shirts um, made, uh, my good friend Nico Malley, his mom actually made the T-shirts for okay. our team, I kind of put his name on the back. So it, instead of just my team, it was Rihanna and Clayton's team. So, that's cool. Yeah. And I think that's part of what, like, this podcast is all about is, like, like for people who don't like you got lucky that you got to meet Clayton and Clayton got to meet you that you had that kind of common connection but it's not always that easy for not that it was easy but like you don't always have the availability of someone who's like going through what you've been through or you know to make that connection so I'm I'm hoping yeah, with this absolutely. that say you know someone who wasn't as lucky to meet you know someone with that in common from maybe across the country or the world can hear your story and be like, oh, I know exactly what she's talking about. And I, I still keep, and I'm good friends with Clayton now, and he's still going through a bunch of stuff. Um, unfortunately, his diagnosis was a little bit later, so he had a lot more complications than I did. And, and you know, I, I just saw him a few weeks ago, and he had surgery recently, and he was just going into all, like, the gory details. And I think because I understand and I've been there, like, he feels as though I can I can – Basically, I honestly think take it 
Right. Because sometimes you don't want to scare other people with yeah, what yeah. you went through. Yeah. And I asked him, you know, he's he's 19 now, so his friends just came back from their freshman year of high school or college. You know, I said, I was like, you know, do your friends ever ask about, like, you know, I'm not a 19-year-old boy. Right. And he goes, you know, like, my one friend asked um, if I was stressed. Or I guess Clayton said he was stressed. Right. And his friend goes, well, why are you stressed? And, and I think Clayton was kind of just like, hmm, well, if you want me to listen yeah, yeah. off, one of them is not schoolwork and one of them is not like getting into a fret. But I wish those were, but were, I wish yeah, exactly. those were my biggest stressors. Right. So it's just kind of, I, I think, like you said, this podcast of just uh, giving people the opportunity to know that they're not the only, the only one, one out there yep. is great. Cool. So you also mentioned that dinner mm-hmm. about your friend uh, Hernan, his name was, uh, Hernan, I think? Hernan, yeah. Hernan, okay. Like Fernando. Yeah. So Hernan, Hernan. is how I got, oh gosh, it's like all convoluted, <sighs> how I got connected with the Teen Cancer America, the organization that raises the awareness for right. the teen lounges. So Hernan works with Teen Cancer America, and he had um, leukemia when he was a teen uh, back in the early 90s. I believe so, early 90s. And, it, you know, even the treatments and, and the technology and all the knowledge was even less back then. You know, pediatric cancer, there's been a big focus the last 20 years on advancements. Um, but Hernan had, has this passion for filmmaking. So he connected with Teen Cancer America and said, I'm going to go make a documentary. I'm going to go to all 50 states and I'm going to interview a teen young adult, either a survivor or someone that's still going through cancer and compiled this documentary to bring awareness to the lack of specific treatments, but more of even like the psychological side and the isolation side that has to do with, you know, just now how the social, like I said, social media and and how the times are different now Um, and how maybe, you know, we need to focus, uh, the change of healthcare needs to focus more on modern times, not necessarily just increasing medicines. Uh, So, Hernan's team contacted Sloan Kettering and said, we're looking to interview a survivor. And one of the PR girls at Sloan instantly instantly was like, oh, interview Rihanna. So I hooked up with him and and we did an interview in Central Park. Um, But, you know, his journey took about seven or eight months. And that's why I think that you guys would have like such a great connection because he's really into the storytelling. Right. Because that's his passion too. And he went through something traumatic and He's trying to better the lives of other people and just the future generation by raising awareness. And, you know, his journey's been, it's been tough. He, um, he is in a wheelchair. So, could, if you could imagine traveling to all 50 states. I like, watched his video that you, that you told me about. Yeah, it's really powerful. I'm going to put that in the show notes for people you, to go over. So, if you're listening to this and you want to see the video, it's uh, just go over to headsandtails.org backslash podcast and it'll be up there. Yeah, and just, just meeting him is, is an inspiration alone. And to think about that he traveled all 50 states, in, you know, right. like you, some of your other podcasts, that's not a limitation to him at all. Right. You know, he does anything. Um, I actually didn't even know he was in a wheelchair when I was first speaking to him. And then I, I tell him to meet me at Central Park. Because like I'm thinking. Looking around. And, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, like. And he's off, like off-roading. He's like, no problem. He has all this equipment on his chair. He had two other documentary filmmakers with him. But you know, we're going up like on the grass hill, and it's it's it was amazing. And um, you know, unfortunately, there's been I think about four or five interviewees 
who have passed away since he interviewed them right. um, through different battles with cancer. Um, but their families have been so supportive and, and so glad that they were able to kind of capture. Exactly. I was just going to say the same thing. It's like it's something that will never go away. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's like that moment in time. And that's kind of what I like about the podcast thing, yeah. too. It's like it will always be there. You know, it's always going to be there somewhere. So that's like that person's mark on, you know. That, that piece of the world or whatever. Absolutely. And it's 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 really inspiring. So I think he actually just posted the other day that I think he's like finally starting to get some rough cuts um, of the documentary. You know, uh, the amount of footage that he uh, – we interviewed for almost three hours, and that was one of the 50 states. Right. Um, so, so his mission is really interesting, and if anyone's interested in learning more about it other than on your webpage, you, you just go to Teen Cancer America. You can see all his stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it's that common theme of you're not alone. Right, exactly, yep. <laughs> and even though today, like, like you said, there's so much connection now. Like, you can know where anyone is, but sometimes that can be more isolating than it is fulfilling. Right. So um, it's, it's a great you know, mission to be able to do that. For sure. It'd be cool if I can get him on the podcast someday too. Uh, all right. So do you organize any fundraisers yourself or have you done that before? Or? No, I have not. No. Do you, do you want, is that something you want to do or? I don't know. I kind of like, like the, uh, you know, something that, um, the layups for life. I'm sorry. What's his first name? Dan Exeter. Dan. Yeah. Dan said it is. You know, he has these great ambitions, and and you know, it costs a lot of money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it costs a lot of money, and it's so the amazing. Basketball game <laughs> yeah. in uh, Times Square. In Times yeah. Square. Uh, It'll happen cost, someday, Dan. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I'll be there when it happens. <laughs> so uh, right now, I've kind of been focusing on more like you know doing teams or helping with other organizations that already exist, just because as as you know, the cancer research stuff is. So expensive. Yeah. Um, and every every dollar does help, but I feel like getting involved with some pre-established stuff has maybe a little bit more of an immediate impact. Right. And um, I just left. Instead of starting something from the ground I, up, yeah, a lot know, of resources. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, would it be an aspiration to do someday? Yeah, maybe. But I just, I just spoke at a Relay for Life last weekend um, in Westwood up in Bergen County, one of my old doctors that I work with thought of me and I went and I spoke to about five or six Bergen County high schools were all there. And it was awesome. Really great audience. Um, So I like, I kind of, that's kind of been more of my focus to do like more, I'll just add my story. I'll let everyone else do the hard work. All right. Yeah. No, I I think that's, (laughs) I think that's, that's, that's completely understandable. Yeah. What is your message to the audiences when you do speak? Like you said, you just spoke at uh, Relay for Life. So w- what do you say to them? Uh, I think the one of the biggest things I've I've learned through my treatment and even – I think it's amazing. You learn more the, f- the older you get and the more you can reflect. Um, I think the biggest thing – and even Hernan asked me this, and it's almost similar to some of the questions you asked. What does it mean to be labeled a survivor? Right. You know, they always say you're a cancer survivor. And, you know, what is that word or that label? How does it define you? And you know what? Like, I look back and I kind of, like, think, wow, like, not that cancer's not the hard, very difficult to overcome and we should be, like, totally bowed down to because sometimes we should. But I feel like everyone is a survivor of something. 
And depending on what you've been through in your life and, and depending on um, your, your family circumstances or, you know, if you've had a death in the family or even if you're, you know, you're having a hard time at school, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's bullying, whether it's online, like waking up every day and, and living your life, like you're surviving something. And I feel like the term should be a little bit more broadened. And that was my biggest message, honestly, for at Relay for Life was, yes, did I go through a traumatic, horrible experience? Absolutely. Do I wish that with all this fundraising that someday cancer will be eliminated? Absolutely. But even if it doesn't affect you, you know, personally, even if you don't get cancer, like you can still understand the, the, um, the attributes that a survivor has and other small life lessons. I, I think I said something. Oh, I laughed because I said, you know, after you go through tr- cancer treatment, that stereotypical YOLO like starts to have more of a meaning. Yeah, exactly, and they were yeah. like laughing. And I said, but there's a lot of other little things too. Like obviously there you have the the more, you know, cliche live every life to the, the you know. Every day to the fullest. And of course. And like, yes, does it, do you kind of realize that a little earlier on? Absolutely. Like wouldn't you say like you appreciate. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Like today when I told you I wanted to go to Josh's base baseball game yeah. uh josh is my friend from high school and Ryan i and also knows him uh but he coaches at fordham baseball i'm like oh it's a perfect day out it's like 75 <laughs> degrees out you know it's sunny i'm like and usually i try to get out of work early on fridays because i work extra hours uh-huh. the rest of the days um that's my phone oh Don't. okay I was um, like, yeah but then i got caught into a meeting and i couldn't i couldn't watch it i was like what is going on it's okay do you need to oh, that? it's because my uh, <laughs> it's because my my laptop is ringing as well. Oh, I'll, yeah, that's why I was all like connected. double ringage. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm like, if I died today, I'm like, I would be so pissed because <laughs> I didn't get to <laughs> go to that baseball, baseball game. game. <laughs> yeah, but um, I think like the three main things I said at the end was was, you know, yes, you you appreciate life more, but there's also small things like what a common theme in this podcast is, you know what? Like things can be very stressful in the moment. You have a big test. You have a fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're, you hate your parent. Like it seems so overwhelming and so life altering at the time. But when you go through something, you know, a little bit more traumatic, it kind of puts things into better perspective. And, you know, that common theme of you can't, control what happens to you, but you can control your attitude and you can control how you react to that. You know, that's an important lesson that you learn. Um, and you know, I wish more people would learn that lesson. I don't wish people had to go through a traumatic experience to learn it, Right. but that's why I think coming maybe from our mouths has a little bit more meaning. And then also is just accepting that life changes. Right. You know what? Everyone hates change. Who like you know? It's just it's a reality of life. Like change sometimes is uncomfortable, but you have to go through it. And um, that was a big thing that we talked about. Is I kind of had these unrealistic unrealistic expectations that once I was done with cancer, once I was done with treatment, and I went back to college, like my life would be totally normal again. Right. And I think all of us, you know, any if you have, have an injury like, or anything, like you're going to be totally normal yeah. again. And, you know, hopefully you can, but uh, it's a little, it's sometimes it's unrealistic and you have to accept that you kind of have a new normal. Um, and that was something that the, um, the psychiatrist at Sloan really had to help me with because I was, I'm stubborn. I was very stubborn. I was very, nope, I'm going to be fine. I'm going back to school. It's going to be old me. And when I got back to school, I actually had, I had a harder time emotionally and mentally after I was done with treatment, than I did going through it. Absolutely 100%. 
Right. And I, I mean, I didn't go through cancer treatment, but I went through this like huge ordeal of getting my skull drilled into multiple times and, you know, almost dying because of my head injury. But it was, it was the emotional toll of not being able to play sports anymore. And to like, like I think we mentioned this last mm-hmm. time was that like, you don't feel like you're the same person. Like you feel okay, but like, you, well, don't you feel, feel gypped. Yeah. You feel, feel like gypped. Like, yeah. like we feel gypped and it's, and you feel like it's unfair. And, and that's another thing that like, and I've spoken to Clayton about before. And another thing, another great tip that I got from the psychiatrist at Sloan was, are you angry? are you kind of pissed that this is happening to you? And I was like, yes, but I feel really guilty. And he goes, well, why do you feel guilty? And I said, well, because as terrible as this is, like I'm surrounded in an environment where I feel terrible for the two-year-old or I feel terrible for the seven-year-old girl who just got her leg amputated. Right. Um, And he goes, yeah, but if you weren't angry right now and if you weren't upset and if you weren't having turmoil internally, something would be wrong with you. Right. (laughs) I remember you saying that. Yeah, and it's, you know what, sometimes we just have to... Uh, everyone wants you to be happy. Like, you know, my family, my friends, when I'm going through treatment, my mom, you know, she just wants me to be happy. You know what? Sometimes I'm just not going to be, be happy. happy yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, you're bald, you're getting poisoned. You just got half your leg removed. Like, no, I'm not happy. And it's okay, okay not yeah. to be happy. Right. <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. Um, are you afraid of, are you afraid of cancer? Honestly, no. And I, I got to be honest, I was never afraid of it even when I got diagnosed. And I think I'm like some kind of like maybe like mental disorder of mine that I just was like, no, not happening to me. Like I was delirious. Like sometimes my oncologist would be like, do you understand yeah. what is going on? Like, because I would get upset that I would have to skip weeks of treatment because my kidneys were failing or I couldn't flush something out. And I'm like, no, let's do, let's keep going. They're like, well, what's like I was always in a hurry because I had that I wanted to get back to school right and sometimes I think they just wanted to like smack me upside the head I'm and be still like, recovering from your from our first <laughs> interview <laughs> for, the, for the first part <laughs> oh God. but no honestly I'm I and I'm more afraid of um messing my leg up or my knee up or fracturing my femur and because that would mean more surgery or yeah so I'm gonna have to get my prosthesis replaced at some point um knock on wood I got like another 10 to 15 years. Yeah, we knock on wood a lot on, yeah, the, on yeah. the podcast. So, you know, the prosthesis I have is not, hasn't been around that long. So they don't really know the longevity of it. Um, and, and I'm pretty active. I'm, my surgeon says I'm one of the most active people he's ever seen. So there's two components. One is, is the wear and tear of just the prosthesis. So eventually I'm going to have to get it replaced. I'm hoping with all of this great research and funding we're doing by the time you need I need or a part replace like there's going to be like this awesome like electric spring and I'm going to be slam dunking right. and like <laughs> watch out everyone because it's going to be cool. Yeah. But Volleyball um, intramurals yeah. are going to be spiked in the face. I know. I'm going to be yeah. like, my vertical is going to go really high. <laughs> it was funny that you say that in volleyball, the league I'm playing in. Um, one of my new teammates didn't know I went through anything. And, you know, I. I have good f- volleyball fundamentals. Obviously, I played a lot. But it's like when I go to jump, like I get maybe two inches off the ground. And I feel like it's kind of like deceiving. You're like, what the? Like you would think. Like, yeah. I, I, hope, like, yeah. I hope people would think I would jump high, but, you know, I don't. <laughs> and finally, I said it. Finally, we like, I was like, you know how you like think I'd be really good at volleyball, but then you're like kind of confused? He's like, yeah, but I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so then we told him and he's like, oh, I feel really bad. I'm like, don't feel bad. 
The fact that you thought I was going to be really good, even though I'm like not bad. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take that. Um, But no, I'm just more afraid because when I had the leg surgery, you know, my recovery was, it was long. It it was probably three to four months. I got to be honest. I don't remember a lot of it. Um, When you're on a lot of narcotics, your memory tends to go in and out. But now that would suck. Yeah. Like I couldn't work because I drive. So I guess that's my left leg. I don't know. I probably shouldn't be driving. To find a way. I wouldn't be able to go. Honestly, can I tell you the most thing that would give me the most anxiety is not being able to go to the gym. Well, I think all athletes that are listening to this would think the same thing. My family would laugh at me, but I had to get uh, like a mole removed and the dermatologist said I couldn't teach spin for a week and I I was having a panic attack. And they're like, can you just relax? And I'm like... I had a mole removed in high school for really the same thing, <laughs> but it was in the middle of like our winter lifting sessions yeah. and we were like about to max out our bench squat and deadlift yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. And my doctor's like, yeah, you can't lift for a week. I'm like, I literally started crying in his <laughs> office. I'm like a 17 year old kid. Cr- I'm like, but oh. you know what? At that time, that is traumatic to you. Right. Like once you, you know, g- go on and have way other problems. But you know what? It's kind of good. And I like that you said that before, that this is like lives on forever because you know what? Like my mom says this to me. This is a funny thing my mom says. So when we were younger, when we would go on vacation, if me and my sister Allison were kind of like, you know, being brats or not being appreciative of vacation, my mom would go, would you rather be here in school to kind of be like, right. Cut the shit. <laughs> it could be worse. It could be worse. So later in life, when I started working, and, you know, I work with these doctors all the time, and sometimes you just, like, get treated like a piece of dirt, or they're, they lie to your face constantly. I work with doctors. Yeah. No, but you're not, no trying, to, but you're not trying to sell them anything. Like, <laughs> could you true. imagine if you're trying to sell them something, yeah. then they're really, like... I'm trying to sell them how awesome I am. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> wish I could do that, but... Um, so my mom now goes to me, would you rather be at work or at Sloan? And it's true. Like, you know what? Sometimes I really freaking hate work, but yeah. I would rather get rejected by every doctor <laughs> f- every day for a month instead of having to go to Sloan. And it's true. And it kind of just like sets that perspective. It reminds you. Sometimes yeah. you need to be reminded, especially after a while that you've been okay. Yeah. And not feel, you forget how you felt back then. I know. So, so it's so just like. Sometimes you need a kick in the ass. Yeah. So long, obviously, I have a hard time answering questions in short amount of time. If, if no one else can notice. This is a record for the Hills podcast. If no one else can notice that. Um, but no. No cancer in me. All right. I like it. <laughs> Ten minutes later. So we actually briefly talked about this before, um, about the role of a psychiatrist mm-hmm. um, in your recovery. And I know a psychiatrist helped me, specifically a sports psychologist, I think, at the time. It could have been anyone, but because it was a sports psychologist, to me, I was like, okay, it's it's a cool thing to go to now. <laughs> like, I feel like there's a stigma that yeah. kind of goes along with seeing psychiatrists. So you, you talked about your expectations going to school. Um, what kind of, like other than, you know, giving you a reality check, what did your psychiatrist do for you, you know, in terms of like drills or goal setting or how did they they help you through that process i know you said you had a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. um so uh, no goals we did it was no like meditation no hypnotism hypnotism ah, no see i got hypnotized that's pretty cool i, I know i had uh, they had masseuse therapy or massage therapy at sloan that was pretty cool they have a lot of cool stuff that come around well i guess they try to make it not so yeah well terrible. like when you have um oh, what's it called um, I think it's called edema. 
It's like swelling. Yeah. So like I had that a lot. Like I would, my body would retain water and my legs, like my calves would be the size of my thighs. Like it was just oh like a block. After I had my Is stomach. Is that like compartment syndrome almost? Oh my God. It was terrible. After I had my um, stomach were reconfigured, right. um, I was going to go to the Sloan prom. They have a prom. It happens at 12 noon. They just they just cover they cover the windows, but they have it in the middle of the day oh, okay. because the kids have to be there. Yeah. Um, but it's really cool because people donate dresses and like you could go shopping and like the kids center. Yeah. And so I was really really sick the first year of prom, but the second year I was getting my stomach you know reattached. So Allison, my sister, came in. She brought her prom dress. She brought my prom dress, and we were going to go to prom. Well, I gained like thirty five pounds of water weight. After my second surgery, we could, first of all, I couldn't fit. <laughs> we couldn't get the dress on, and second, I could hardly walk because my legs were so full of fluid. So the masseuse therapy comes and helps with that. But so did you go to prom? No, oh. I didn't. But they came up and they brought me like a little goodie bag of prom goodies. Yeah, like you know, some kind of like a pretty pretty princess, like plastic bead, pediatric style. Yeah. Well, I, did I tell you I sat on um, Santa came? Oh, I have yeah. a Santa story, too. Santa came, and, and you could get a really cool Nike duffel bag if you sat on Santa's lap, even at 20. <laughs> so <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> yeah, so I go in there, and I sit on Santa's lap, and I get the 13 and up duffel bag. So they had, like, different age groups, yeah. and so it was just 13 and up. Um, another reason why the lounge should <laughs> be important. Yeah. So oh, great, cool Nike duffel bag. It had some really good stuff, but um, you know, like a Miley Cyrus CD. Um, <laughs> had, you, I think it had did some Justin Did you watch a lot of Bieber. Hannah Montana while you were um, in, in the hospital? No, I didn't really watch anything because I was really loopy. So I would fall asleep a lot. Like my friends would come and we would try to watch a movie, and I would fall asleep halfway through, and they'd be like try to turn the movie off, and then I'd wake up and be like... Don't you leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they said it was really it. weird. I was like in and out of <laughs> conscious states. Um, but back to the psychiatrist thing. Um, no, it was just more of uh, of hearing from someone that wasn't my family and wasn't my friend and someone that didn't want me to be happy or have the best... Not that they don't have the best you know, intentions for you because they do, but after a while, like support systems are unbelievable, but I, I swear, just having like a little bit of a reality check of saying kind of, um, what's the word, um, validating my feelings that it's okay to feel upset and it's okay right. to be angry. Um, and he really just had to, to help me with the anxiety thing. Because my biggest worry going back to school was I went back with the ileostomy for six months. So I had the bag where my intestines were coming out. Um, for six I would months. say that would give me anxiety too. Yeah, and you know, depending on what you eat or how you're feeling that day, like there is a possibility that it can leak. So I used to change my bag every day, but like some people don't. But there's still like a possibility. Like so, where the intestines come out, you would put this. I put this like little rubber. It was almost like a uh, a donut on top, and that would help. Um, but you know, they, then there's like sticker that adheres to your side and, you know, after having it for several, several months, sometimes your skin get irritated and like the adhesion issues. So there's always a chance that it could leak. So that's embarrassing. Um, you know, also when you're 20, your clothes aren't necessarily made to cover up this thing. You know, we wear low cut jeans and tight or clothes. So you know, it was just more anxiety stuff about that. Um, but he was definitely helpful. But 
one thing that he did recommend, uh, because I went back to school at Marist and he was in New York City, was um, to kind of find someone either locally or on campus that could help me as well. And believe it or not, there was a counselor at Marist that I started seeing freshman year. Okay. So when I went to school freshman year and I was having that really hard time my first season, like I was just like, you know. Oh, so you were a believer before all well, this happened. Well, yes, because I was having such, I was like so miserable and I thought, you know, I was like this rock star in New Jersey and then I go to college and I was having a hard time adjusting. I was having sleeping issues. So I started going to this counselor and she was so helpful. She worked with my team when I got diagnosed. They did like team sessions all when I was gone. So she ended up almost like, you know, helping out my team. And then when I went back to school, I would go to see her too. Just, but it was so great to have that connection because right. she was also helpful when I wasn't at school because yeah. she was kind of like my spokeswoman. Her and one of my advisors at, at school, um, one of my teachers who's like the best teacher I ever had, they really did a lot for me. So I think you can seek help in multiple ways and I'm a big believer of that. And I, I, I got to be honest, I think our generation is, is a little bit different. Like my, my mom will admit to anyone that before I got sick, like, you know, she didn't really, was not that big of an advocate for medicines, you know, for seeking mental health. But like once I got, you know, we got there, the doctor said to my mom, listen, she's going to be on a lot of medicine. You better get used to it. And then seeing what this psychiatrist has done, like she'll still say he was probably the biggest help of all my, my therapy, obviously, besides the right. oncologist. But, um, you know, like, it, life isn't easy, I don't think, for anyone, no matter what you do. Yeah. You know what? Like, if life was easy, like, what would be the point? Like, we would have no achievements. It'd be boring. And, yeah. So there's nothing wrong with seeking someone. It doesn't have to be, a like, a psychiatrist, and you don't have to go on drugs. But it can just be, like, counselors at school or... You know, getting someone else's perspective is not a That's bad not your mom or your dad, yeah. Yeah. Because they're your number one fan, so. I know. Like, nothing's wrong with you. Yeah. That's, that's what my mom would say. Yeah. But nothing's wrong with you. The psychiatrist you. doesn't care what the hell you do. Yeah. So they're giving you that unbiased. Well, when I got the, t when I had the, the we found out it was a bone tumor, and, you know, you Google bone tumor, osteosarcoma comes up pretty quick. Oh, nothing's wrong with you. Don't worry. Nothing's wrong with you. That's what a parent wants to do. They yeah, don't want yeah. anything to be wrong with your kid. So, you know, it's, it's, there's I think the stigmatism is getting better. I do. But I do think I'm starting to see a shift even at Sloan of more on mental health. You know, they're very concerned with everything medically, killing cancer cells. But, you know, they really, you know, it's just as important to, to focus on the mind. Yep. So. Got to keep your, your brain healthy. Yeah. I, I actually remember when we were talking about stigmas. My parents were divorced when I was pretty young, like seven. I was like seven years old. Mm -hmm. I remember my mom would take me to see a psychiatrist. Not that I was like upset about the divorce or whatever. She just wanted to make sure that I was okay. Yeah. I remember I was like embarrassed to go. I like I, I thought that there was like a stigma. Even when I was like young, like seven, eight, nine, I remember running up the steps because I didn't want anyone to see me. It was yeah. like in the middle of Long Valley. I'm like, I don't want my my friends to know that I go here. Was, and yeah. then I ate shit up <laughs> the stairs. I crushed my shit on the step. I was like bleeding. I was like, oh, oh God. wait, I have to ask you a really important question. Yeah. Did you do banana splits? Yeah. Oh. You didn't get to do that. No, my parents didn't get divorced till I was in high school. They don't oh, have. Okay. <laughs> So for the listeners they out there, yeah, for the listeners out there, Banana Splits was like everyone was jealous. Like, okay, so they have a club called Banana Splits. When you're in first grade and you are a tall, 
athletic girl that likes ice cream and there's a club called Banana Splits and you're oh, not I'm invited. In. I'm in, yeah. Like, you're like, what the heck? Like, all these cool people get to go to Banana Splits. <laughs> Later, you find out that it's just, it's for coping for kids with divorced yeah. parents, right? I think we got, like, lollipops or something. But did you we get Banana Splits? Like, once a year. Scam. There's, like, an ice cream. Scam. Yeah. <laughs> we got something every time, though. <laughs> I think it was, like, lollipops or something. That's a scam. But, yes, I was a Banana Splits kid. That's cool. But, you know what? It doesn't even, I think, also, we have to find the right either psychiatrist, psychologist, because I've struggled even the past two or three years to find someone I like. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm picky because I work with doctors all the time, but I have a hard time. Like, I've been diagnosed bipolar, or roughly, I was told I was bipolar. I'm like, what? I'm not bipolar. <laughs> what? She- I'm not bipolar? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Shut up. Maybe I should have done you that. Suck. If- <laughs> Left the desk. You're the worst psychiatrist ever. Well, and I wanted to know about medicine and how it worked because I work in pharmaceuticals. Like I'm interested in how like mechanism of action and everything. And she goes, "Oh, you don't need to know that." I'm like, you're gonna give me a medicine? I don't need to know, know that. What, yeah, just, so just I'm like, take eh. it. Yeah, just take it. You'll yeah, love it. I'm like, no. So it's hard, but you got to find someone that you like. Agreed. <laughs> okay, so. I took your spin class. Yes. And you could not tell at all that you had a prosthetic in your leg. You can't you're just tell. Do, you're just doing that because you know I wanted to hear that. No, I was looking the whole but, time. Okay. I was staring at your knee. I was like, eh, is there? But what if you, you just <laughs> like went out halfway through class and the metal was just shooting out of my leg? I think that would be pretty scary. <laughs> what, I, what I did notice <laughs> is that the people in your class, yeah. not very talkative. I know. Like, I'm the new guy. And I know. I feel like I was, I mean, I guess we have Am that I long scary? valley connection. I don't no. Oh, God, I try. But, uh, yeah, they, they weren't talkers at all. I know. It's okay. So I feel like if your knee did do that, they'd be like, they just walk out quietly and not really do anything. <laughs> <They better laughs> not. Well, I, I would only like maybe four people that take my class know. So. Oh, really? Yeah. They're the consistent ones? Yeah. Well, not even those, but just people that like I've, I have like built relationships with outside of the gym. but Or who see me do other classes where I have to modify. Oh, uh, okay. That's yeah. exactly what I was getting towards oh. because I was going to ask you, how have you learned to modify your, you know, activities? You go from being an athlete where you feel like you can do anything and now you kind of have to tone it back. And we talked about on our walk to the gym, I believe we talked about CrossFit and how that was kind of my outlet. But you're afraid to do it because not because of the movements or anything, but because you want to be able to do things you shouldn't do. So uh, modifying that's a loose term for me because I do way more than I should. Quote, unquote. Yeah. Um, but some modifications just have to do with range of motion. Like my knee only bends back so much. So there's certain things like that's it. I can't like in yoga. I like, really like yoga and Pilates. There's certain modification poses I just can't, can't yeah. physically do. Um, uh, we are, have to really be careful is this high impact stuff. So can I do jumping jabs? Absolutely. If you were chasing me, could I run away? Yes. Would I look terrible? Yes. My sister <laughs> makes fun of me for that. But <laughs> She chases you? No, she doesn't chase <laughs> me, but I, I really want to learn how to play tennis, and she laughs at me when I play tennis because I, like, look funny. Well, I could see if you try to, like, yeah, I could see I don't it being think hard. I know. That's the problem. It's, it's, it's like you said. Like, once you have that mentality, I don't like to be told no, so I just avoid the situations where I need to be told no. So listening to your podcast, binge listening for the past few weeks, like, I'm so into CrossFit, and I'm mad because I know I can't do it. Yeah. Biggest thing is is just 
I, I can't be like maxing out. Like I would want to go heavier and heavier. Right. And I, I just, at the end of the day, like I need to just be happy that I have a leg that I wasn't amputated and that I can do what I can do. And that's it. Right. So I, I modify when I can. I really try to do, um, really low impact as much as possible. You know what? I'm the, I'm the girl in the class that, you know, when the instructor gives modifications to, you know, kind of do like side steps instead of jumping jacks, you know, sometimes if my knees bother me, I'll do that. And if you do it quickly, it keeps your heart rate up. You know, there's no shame in modif in modifying. Um, yeah, it's more like just it's the athlete mentality, especially when yeah, you, oh, when, you totally. when at one point in your life you could do it and now you can't. And to come to grips with that, it's like, like for example, like my friends play, you know, f football on Thanksgiving Day, but of course they want to play tackle football on Thanksgiving Day. Can't you just wear like a like a foam bubble? Well, <laughs> not really. <laughs> That'd be so cool. You know those like big bubble things. <laughs> bubble boy. Oh yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Actually, and they run into each other. <laughs> yeah. But you're in like it's like a little mouse wheel. Almost. Yeah. Yes, I've seen those and they do look fun. But the thing about concussions is that your brain is really just sloshing around inside your skull. So no matter what protective equipment you have, it's not really going to protect you. Yeah. But, like, I would do anything to, like, be able to play with, with those guys again. But I can't. And yeah. And you just kind of kind of be like, you know what? It's okay. Like, you, you had your time, you know. And, and that's <laughs> the thing. And, and that's the thing. You just have to, like you said, just put it, like, is my life worth playing? Right. This? And then at Rutgers, I played, like, flag football and intramurals and stuff and like looking back i'm like i was such an idiot like did they was it tacklish uh, well, I, I just made I, that work did you like that word I made, yeah. up? <laughs> <laughs> made that word up well it does get out of hand sometimes and especially like when two guys or gals are going up for the same ball like if i'm trying to go for interception and the receiver is trying to catch that same ball like you're there's a good chance you're going to collide into each other well and that's what makes me most nervous about volleyball like my uh, people get I'll dive on my right side. No problem. Doesn't affect my leg. I get more nervous at the net. Like if someone else is coming at me and right. if they jump underneath the net. Take cause, you out. Because that's a, that's a common injury in volleyball is like when you're going up to block, if you land on someone else's feet, right. you can roll your ankles. Right. Um, so that's my biggest fear. But again, like we've talked about this. You have to balance that fear. Like you, if you don't have any fear, then then that's crazy. Like you have to have some fear in life, and especially if you had an injury, you, you know, it sets some boundaries. But you can't let it completely dictate your, your life, life yeah. because, like you've said, you could get in a car accident tomorrow. You can have a heart attack. You can, yeah, you, you know, don't. there's other issues where, but yeah, it has to be a balance. Everything it has to be a balance. So. Right. Yeah. Now I'm a little smarter about what I do, but. <laughs> There's still, even, you know, eight years out, it's still inside me that I'm like, damn, I want to do that. Like, you know, and it's like, it's crazy sometimes, like, even um, seeing, like, younger athletes, like, play through things. Um, you know, uh, one of my stepsisters fractured, broke her leg, like, four times in the last few years playing high school soccer. And, you know, she loves soccer, and she loves p being part of the team. But, like, at the end of the day, I'm like, do you want to, like, be able to walk the rest of your life like it's sometimes you just gotta like shake the younger kids yeah. and be like do you do you want yeah, to be able to yeah when you're a kid though you, don't you think, care. You think now you don't think <laughs> i know that's that's the thing and that's why hopefully with this podcast you can understand like looking kids, back yeah. yeah um because you know you have a, a long life to live bodies are resilient but they're they can be pretty fragile too <laughs> yeah no trust me i know <laughs> yeah uh okay so we've 
broke a record by far on uh, time for a podcast. I've had fun uh, doing the interview. I hope you have too. And your story is like crazy. Like I said before, I'm like still recovering from all the turmoil that you went through. So I don't even know how you are are doing with it. But we kind of ended the podcast at, at, at part one with my usual questions. But I'm going to add this one in there this time. And I took it from uh, Lewis Howes. He has a podcast called The School of Greatness. Okay. It's probably my favorite podcast other than the Heads and Tails podcast. Avi. But he started asking this question. I thought it was awesome. So, if you had to get a tattoo on your forehead of one word, mm-hmm. it could then it would be backwards. You had to look at it in the mirror every single day, and other, everyone else can see it too. Mm-hmm. Um, what would it be? All one, right. So I already told you I was going to have a convoluted answer to this. I always thought like once you went through something traumatic, you would have like an awesome tattoo, or you would be like in memorum. Is that the word? Mem- memorandum. No, I think is that it. I, don't I know. think I'm that's like a note. Up. Yeah. For school. Okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, memo. You guys know what we're talking about. Um, and then I went through something, and it's like, ah. And you know what? I wouldn't put anything because I have enough scars on my body. Those are my tattoos. Because our scars remind us that the past is real. You don't know that song? Yeah, but who sings that? Uh, it's not Papa Roach. It's I don't know. No. It's one of those, like, skater bands. Really? That's okay. I really, yeah. Part three will be (laughs) instrumental. We're going to have instruments. We're having a clarinet, a recorder, and a banjo. Woohoo! Yeehaw. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Rihanna. Thank you for spending so so much of your life on the Heads and Tails podcast. Thank you for finding your way into my life. LV, where you at? (laughs) 